This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, look, the calendar on the wall or on your phone, I don't know how many people still use wall calendars. I do. But uh, the calendar may say that it's President's Day. But if you look at what happened today, yesterday, the day before, it's not President's Day. It's Groundhog Day. We are living the same day over and over and over again. I was, um, before I left for the uh, program tonight, or last night, I had, you know, one of the news channels on the television set, and uh, at the bottom of the screen, it said, Russian invasion of Ukraine possible at any time. You go to another news channel, it says, Biden says Putin is expected to invade Ukraine any day. Now, look, the cover of Saturday's New York Post, Brink of War. Biden convinced Putin has decided to invade Ukraine. Wall Street Journal, Russia is set to invade Ukraine, Biden says. New York Times, Biden says he's convinced Putin has decided to invade. Now, I I said to my wife, if it's a day that ends in a Y, it's a day that Biden is saying that Putin's going to invade Ukraine. And look, I realize we're talking about people's lives here and that you could see some loss of life, some people losing their homes, some people that are forced to become refugees. So I'm not trying to be flippant. But at this point, if there is a Russian invasion, it has become so anticlimactic. It's almost, um, you know, it's like friends. You know, Ross and Rachel getting together, right? You just know it. All right. okay, All right. All right. We've been there. We've seen that we've been down this road before. Uh, to use another sitcom comparison, which I, I hate to do, I was watching, my wife and I are rewatching Cheers now. I'm rewatching it. She's watching it for the first time. And there's an episode, uh, I think it was the last episode that Shelley Long was in as Diane. And one of the running jokes throughout the, the episode is that uh, Carla, who does obviously doesn't like Diane, she keeps uh, saying, um, like she keeps, Saying, well, why do you want to marry her? You know, and Sam keeps saying, well, because I love her. That's why I love her. And that's the response throughout the whole show. Then they do a flash forward to Sam and Diane living as an old couple. Many, many years in the future. 50, 60 years in the future. Sam picks up the phone. Who's on the other end of the phone? It's Carla. And then Sam, 50, 60 years later, is still saying the same thing to her. Because I love her. That's why. And he hangs up. I feel... Like the same thing is going on. Every single day we're told it's going to be a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, is this possible? Of course. Of course it's possible. It's possible that uh, we could have seen a situation where, uh, you know, you had uh, President Xi, Vladimir Putin's new buddy, essentially say, 
that, uh, well, do whatever you have to do. Just wait until after the Olympics are in China. Certainly possible. But at what point do all the people that have been saying this lose credibility? Because every day, first they said it was February 16th. And then we were told, oh, no, no, it's not February 16th. It's February 20th. And then they they asked the Biden administration about this. And they said, oh, that date didn't come from us. And the press is able to rely on the fact that it's just anonymous sources that said this. So let me explain to you why. And I don't like to make predictions. But let me explain to you briefly why I honestly do not think that Russia and Vladimir Putin will invade Ukraine. And again, I think we'll be here a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. And I'll be saying the same thing. And Biden will be saying the same thing. The, Biden will be saying, well, any day now, any day now, I expect uh, that Putin will invade Ukraine. Now, of course, eventually he'll be right. Just like if I predict every day that it's going to rain, eventually I'm going to be right. If you predict every day the world is going to end, eventually you'll be right. Each day it becomes more likely than not. If you, you bet the double zero on the roulette table every single time, eventually it's going to come out. Sometimes it may take 35 spins. Sometimes it may take one spin. And it really leads you to think, you know, John Katzmatidis brought this up on uh, the Cats Roundtable Sunday morning with me, that m- maybe this is being done because of Biden's domestic political troubles. I, I hate to think that, but we've seen a long history of presidents using foreign conflicts or foreign diplomatic maneuvering as cover for their shortcomings when it comes to domestic politics. Now, here's why, and I want you to think, and I tried to lay this out on the Cats Roundtable Sunday morning, but, you know, there's only so far you can go when you have a minute to speak about this. Let me explain to you honestly why I think an invasion is unlikely. Look, tomorrow, if Russian troops are... Uh, goose-stepping into Donetsk, then you could come back to me and say, oh, Frank, you're wrong again, wrong again. Certainly I am. But I'll explain to you why. But when it comes to predictions, if you keep making the same prediction, eventually you're going to be right. You know, one of the tricks that I've made, and if you followed me on social media or on the radio for the last, what year is it? 2020, for the last 12 years, Right before the presidential election, the general election, I always make the same prediction. Always, every single time, I make the same prediction. And I've been wrong every single time. Every single time, the prediction that I make is, oh, it's going to be an electoral vote tie. It's going to be decided by the House of Representatives. Now, I'm going to keep making that prediction. Eventually, I'm going to be right. Now, President Biden was on NBC with uh, Lester Holt last week. And he was asked, I think, the most important question that Americans are wondering, even the people that call me and call me a Russian stooge and say I'm weak or whatever they say, um, the most whatever I ask them is the same question Lester Holt asked Biden. This is this is what Biden said to Lester Holt. What scenarios would you put American troops to rescue and get Americans out? There's not. That's a world war when Americans and Russians start shooting at one another. We're in a very different world than we've ever been in. Not even on behalf of simply evacuating Americans? No. How how, how do you do that? How do you even find them? This is not like I'm hoping 
that if, in fact, he's foolish enough to go in, he's smart enough not to, in fact, do anything that would negatively impact on American citizens. Have you, have you told him that? Yes. You've, you've told him to, that, that you know, Americans would be a line that they can't cross? Well, I, I didn't have to tell him that. He, I've, I've spoken about that. He knows that. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit... Uh, look... That's why what I've asked is American citizens should leave, should leave now. We're dealing with one of the largest armies in the world. This is a very different situation and things could go crazy quickly. So listen to what Biden said there. And I believe that what he said is true. Lester Holt asks, what would prompt you to send American troops? Now, again, if you listen to his response, it makes you realize how crazy what he's doing in sending 8,500 or 13,000 troops to Europe is. If he's being sincere here, then why even why send these troops to Europe? Why go through the theater of it? But what Biden said there was, in the clip we just played, when asked what scenario would have troops rescue Americans fleeing Ukraine, there's not. That's a world war when Americans and Russians start shooting at one another. He's exactly right. Now, I'm not sure why it took all this prodding from Lester Holt to get Biden to say that. He could have said that from Jump Street, but good. Okay, he said it. Now, Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican, disagrees with Biden on everything. He went on the floor of the U.S. Senate and said something similar. I want to be clear and unequivocal. We should not have American soldiers in Ukraine under no circumstances. Should we send our sons and daughters to die to defend Ukraine from Russia? If the Biden administration proposes that because their foreign policy is collapsing around that, I will vigorously oppose such a move. And the vast majority of Americans do as well. So you have Ted Cruz, a Republican, Biden, the Democrat, essentially saying the same thing. Is that we don't want troops going to Ukraine The American people don't want troops going to Ukraine. And they're both right. Now, the question is, why are we going through all this? Now, I I, I don't want to be the Russia guy, and I've spent far too much time for somebody that knows nothing about foreign policy talking about Russia for the last uh, year and a half. But if there's anything that you can take away from all of the interviews I've done on Russia with Vladimir Posner, Colonel Douglas McGregor, Colonel Daniel Davis, uh, Brian McDonald, the American communist living in the Donbass region, uh, Russell Bentley, uh, Joshua Schifrinson. You go down the list. Go down the list. If there's one thing all of them have said, whether they're Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, nonpolitical, uh, whether, they, whether they are hawkish or dovish, whatever their view is, They have all said the same thing about what's motivating Putin here. They've all said that Putin does not want Ukraine joining NATO and he doesn't want NATO on Russia's borders. Now, I happen to think that's a reasonable request because you remember America wouldn't like that either. If uh, Cuba was was poised to partner with China, I don't think we would we would be too crazy about that in a military manner. And you remember when Germany tried to get Mexico to attack the United States during World War I, the so-called Zimmerman telegram? 
The United States wasn't crazy about that. The whole rationale of the Monroe Doctrine is we don't want adversaries in our hemisphere. That's an oversimplification, but you you get what I mean. Um, So Putin's primary objective here is to keep Ukraine out of NATO. Everyone acknowledges that. Vladimir Zelensky says we're not going to seek NATO membership. Zelensky even says we're going to maybe have people vote and say we don't want to join NATO to show Putin we're serious about not joining NATO. Germany has no appetite for siding with the Ukrainians in a Russia-Ukraine fight. because Germany, they just want to keep the energy pumping from Russia to Germany. So understand what is NATO all about? Why do countries want to join NATO? Okay. It all comes down to Article 5. Article 5 of the NATO treaty obliges all of the other NATO allies to come to that country's defense if they're attacked. So you take all the NATO countries, uh, Canada, Montenegro, Great Britain, Germany, France, if they're attacked and they invoke Article 5, we are bound by treaty to go in and aid in that country's defense. Now, if you have Biden, Cruz, Germany, all saying the same thing, which is, we're not sending troops to Ukraine. Are you crazy? That basically says we're not going to honor any Article 5 treaty obligation that we have with Ukraine. So why would anybody be angling for Ukraine to join NATO? To me, Putin's won this round. He wanted to make sure United States troops were not at Russia's borders. And by getting this guarantee, or it's not necessarily a guarantee, but by getting this statement from Biden, from Cruz, from Germany, he's won. And if Ukraine can't join NATO for all the logistical problems that that proposes, then obviously if you go further to the east of Ukraine, it's going to be very difficult to get Georgia to join Ukraine excuse uh, to join NATO. So Putin's won, as far as I'm concerned. That's why I don't think there's going to be any invasion of Ukraine. Uh, because Putin's achieved his primary objective. Now, we've been chronicling this issue in the Donbass region, where you have these breakaway republics, uh, the People's Republic of Donetsk and others, claiming to be their own country. The people that live there are ethnic Russians. The ethnic Russians say, and again, we spoke with an American communist, Russell, Peter, Russell uh, Bentley, who said that this is what they're seeing. The, the, the Russian people living, the ethnic Russian people living in eastern Ukraine, who claim to be their own country, they have said they're being attacked by the Ukrainians. And look, there is some anecdotal evidence to support that. But it is interesting to me, the media coverage of this whole Russia thing. You read the New York Times eight hours ago, Russian-backed separatists who have been fighting the Ukrainian government for years have asserted without evidence that Ukraine was planning a large-scale attack on territory they control. Now, when I read that sentence, I was dumbfounded. I I said, okay, the New York Times wants to start calling out people for saying there's no evidence of anything. 
Why, when we were repeatedly and continue to be told that a Russian invasion of Ukraine is imminent, why is there never that same disclaimer in the New York Times saying the Biden administration claims without evidence that Putin has decided to invade Ukraine? Why, why is there no disclaimer then? Because one version is this hawkish Putin as a James Bond villain mentality that the New York Times agrees with, and one is not. Tony Blinken was on uh, one of the Sunday shows yesterday. I can't keep them straight. Maybe it was Face the Nation. Maybe it was Meet the Press. Maybe it was ABC's This Week. Maybe it was Fox News Sunday. I don't know which one it was. They're all the same to me. They all just blend in with one another. The Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, was doing whatever he could to stoke the flames of Russia hysteria. Just a couple of days ago, and I made a very simple ask of the Russians. Tell the world, without equivocation, without deflection, that you will not invade Ukraine. Not, uh, we don't have a plan to invade Ukraine. Not, we don't have an intention to invade Ukraine. But we will not invade Ukraine. And the Russian representative either couldn't or wouldn't say that. And I suspect the ambassador didn't say that either. So, as President Biden said the other night, everything uh, we're seeing tells us that the decision we believe President Putin has made to, to invade is moving forward. We've seen that with uh, provocations created by the Russians or separatist forces over the weekend, false flag operations. Now the news uh, just uh, this morning that the quote-unquote exercises Russia was engaged in uh, in Belarus with 30,000 Russian forces that were supposed to end this weekend will now continue. Now, if we do go for, if we do see a Putin invasion of Ukraine, part of the reason that that will have transpired is because of the relationship that Russia and Putin have developed with China and President Xi. And you need to understand that it's that mentality that Tony Blinken just expressed that is primarily responsible for us driving Russia into China's hands. And honestly, I don't see how that makes the United States better off. And it's this mentality that we're still fighting the Cold War that needs to change. Um, look, again, it is possible that there will be a Russian invasion of Ukraine now that the Olymp- Olympics will have been over. It's possible. But this level of Blinken-esque fear-mongering is modern-day McCarthyism, as far as I'm concerned. This mentality needs to change. You know, it's days like today that I really miss Professor Stephen Cohen. He was a professor of Russian studies at um, Princeton and NYU, regular guest of mine. He would go on other radio shows as well. And I, I was friendly with him, and I love this man. This man, and one of the themes that you're going to hear all night long, including in our next segment on Warren G. Harding, is the idea of revisionist history. And revisionist history gets such a bad rap because, in my view, there's nothing wrong with revising our view of history. And it was Stephen Cohen's scholarship when it comes to revisionist history that led to detente, in part, between the Soviet Union and the United States. And Gorbachev had read one of Stephen Cohen's many books on this subject that challenged the prevailing narrative of history. 
And all I could think all weekend is I was seeing these headlines, just waiting to get back on the radio. And don't worry, we're going to do some non-Russia stuff today. A lot of non-Russia stuff. It's President's Day. It's a holiday. We're going to have some fun. We're going to talk presidential stuff. we got a lot of stuff to get to. we got uh, commendations. Trust me, this is going to be a show for the ages. But all I thought was I wish Stephen Cohen had not died two years ago. Not only because I wish he was still alive to contribute to the world, but I wish I could still talk to him and ask him questions. And I'm so thankful that I have so many of his books that his writing lives on and I constantly refer to them. And I was getting nostalgic for Professor Stephen Cohen. And I posted a television clip of John Tobacco and me interviewing him on Newsmax uh, from about three years ago. And I said, it's days like today that I really miss Professor Stephen Cohen. And wouldn't you know it, the first two comments I got were people saying, oh, he's a troll, he's a Putin puppet. And all I could think of is, one, that I disagreed with these people, but how is calling someone a name, how is the an ad hominem attack, how is that at all helpful to avoiding 5 million people being displaced or a, a Cold War that's about to become hot? And, you know, it's funny, I listen to rank-and-file people, not not so much callers to this station, but as I go about the course of my day, there's a cartoonish understanding of what goes on in Eastern Europe. There's no depth. There's no understanding of the nuance. There's no understanding of the history. Forgetting about the 30 years, the, the 500 years of history, there's no understanding of the last 30 years of history. And unless we change this mentality, then we're going to be doing this Every day. It really will be Groundhog Day and not President's Day. So that's my two cents. Uh, We're scheduled to talk with Ryan Walters. He's an independent historian and author of a brand new book all about Warren G. Harding, which uh, I just started reading, but I'm enjoying very much. And uh, we're going to talk. It is President's Day. So we're going to look. On President's Day, we celebrate all our presidents. And we look back at the, the contributions they've all made. Warren G. Harding has historically been given a very poor grade when it comes to historians. Ryan Walters wants to change that. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, we will get to your calls throughout the evening, throughout the morning. 800-848-WABC. We'll talk Warren G. Harding straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, it is President's Day. And one of, you know, everybody's favorite things to do, certainly one of my favorite things to do, when it comes to President's Day is people love to make lists of their favorite presidents, the best presidents, the worst presidents. And, look, if you look at most historians, liberal historians, conservative historians, a lot of times they end up with the same um, presidents at the top of their list. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. Then if they're a left of center historian, maybe they put somebody like Franklin Roosevelt in there. If they're uh, a right of center historian, maybe they put somebody like, uh, you know, uh, somebody like Theodore Roosevelt in there. Thomas Jefferson, he cracks the top five once in a while. The 
bottom of the list, you see people like James Buchanan. You see people like Millard Fillmore. You see people like Franklin Pierce. You see folks. You see folks like Andrew Johnson. Right. From time to time, two of the presidents that make it toward the bottom of the list are Ulysses S. Grant and Warren G. Harding. Now, one of the things that we've seen the last couple of years is that because of the work of a popular uh, historian, Ron Chernow, we've seen an incredible rehabilitation of the reputation of Ulysses S. Grant. And now a lot of historians are not ranking him towards the bottom. Well, we have someone on who may be doing the same service to Warren G. Harding. Ryan Walters is an independent historian. He's a history professor at Collin College and the author of the brand new book, The Jazz Age President Defending Warren G. Harding. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I know it's late, especially on a President's Day. I appreciate it so much, Frank. I'm I'm happy to be here. I'll I'll talk to anybody at any time, day or night. Well, I'm flattered to be in the anybody anytime category. <laughs> uh, all right, so of all 45 presidents, you know, there's some interesting characters that have been mm-hmm. in the office of the presidency, and I know you've written about uh, a couple of them. Why pick Warren G. Harding? Uh, why would you choose to focus? And I, I've been reading through the book uh, now with a three month old. I haven't read it as closely as and as thoroughly as I would have liked, but I did spend a good portion of the weekend reading through it, and it's really well done. I could tell the amount of work that you put in this. Why put in this amount of work and this amount of time uh, on a president like Warren G. Harding? Well, I think he's unfairly maligned. He's he's I consider him the most maligned president for this reason. If you look at all of the presidential rankings, going back to the very first one that was ever done, Arthur Schlesinger's poll in 1948, all the way to the latest one on C-SPAN last year, Harding has finished last in more of those polls and rankings than any other president, including Buchanan. Now, he's come up a few notches in recent years. In the, in the latest C-SPAN poll, he was 37th, but he's still in the bottom 10, which is considered a failed category. And I don't think that that's justified when you look at his record. Again, he's got scandals and other things, but when you look at what he accomplished as president, I don't think he deserves to be down there. So if you if you look at his reputation, one of the things when we talk about Harding is uh, people always tend to bring up the same thing, that he's uh, he was a nice guy, that he really looked like a president. He looked like a part. But um, the guy was as corrupt as the day is long. He brought in a bunch of his buddies from Ohio, the Ohio gang. They they stole whatever wasn't nailed down. He cheated on his wife like crazy. Uh, The guy was drunk most of the time. In your view, what is inaccurate about this uh, this historical uh, legacy of Warren G. Harding? Um, all of what you just said is historically inaccurate, in my opinion, because what I did was look at the real record. I looked at the primary sources. I looked at his letters. I looked at memoirs of people that served with him and around him and knew him, even reporters, even some people that were hostile to him. And I didn't find that at all. Uh, they say he was dumb and wasn't intellectual or drunk most of the time. That wasn't the case either. When you read his letters, um, you see somebody that had a grasp of the issues, that knew what he was talking about, that understood politics. 
he had a few scandals. He didn't benefit by any of them. Um, there was no such thing as an Ohio gang. Uh, there were a couple of individuals that were corrupt, but he didn't bring a bunch of people from Ohio to Washington to loot the Treasury. Um, there were people that did, but most of the people that he appointed from, from Ohio um, were honest people. And the fact is, Harding did something about the scandals, as, as he found out about them. There were three in his administration. The most famous was Teapot Dome. He had found out about that just before he passed away. In August of 1923, he died in office after 881 days. So there were people that were fired. There were people that he confronted. There were people that were arrested and went to prison for that. Look at Grant. Grant had a bunch of scandals in his administration and didn't do anything about any of them. Um, A lot of people resigned their positions in Grant's administration, and he was very reluctant to accept their resignation. So uh, it's how they responded to him. It's a lot different between Harding and Grant. You you spend a, a bit of time looking at Harding's record on foreign policy, and you describe how he sort of reversed America's interventionist foreign policy, which in, in the aftermath of World War One and the League of Nations, folks thought that that was going to be the new norm. Uh, for the United States. Uh, Talk about that a little bit. Why was that a significant accomplishment in your view, is uh, going away from that Wilsonian level of interventionist foreign policy? Exactly. That's one big area where he gets almost no credit at all. Nobody really looks at it. They don't look much at his economic accomplishments, although I think people are doing that now. But foreign policy, uh, they ignore it altogether. But if you look at his foreign policy, it was very good. You're right. We had been on really a 20-year progressive kick. It really started with the Spanish-American War, but then by the time we get to Wilson, now we're sending troops overseas to Europe for the first time to intervene in this war uh, in Europe. And, of course, it was over quickly in November 1918, and people were really happy that it was over. But but Americans, by and large, didn't have the stomach for any more. And I think that's why you see public opinion polls that stayed high all, uh, around 80 to 90 percent until Pearl Harbor. People didn't want to get involved in any of that anymore. I think that's a big reason why Harding won over 60 percent of the vote in 1920. He was calling for a turn to normalcy. And he said, Wh- which I've heard was not we- even a word at the time, uh, normalcy. Well, well, that's 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 the that's a myth too. That actually was a word. It's actually in older dictionaries. That's been that's a myth that's been disproven as well. A lot of people say he made it up or he misspoke. It was in dictionaries at the time. Um, he even admitted that's where he had found it in a dictionary. I mean, he was he had some quirky language sometimes, and some of his speeches didn't make a whole lot of. You know, they weren't written way speeches are today, but. Um, he was pretty much a wordsmith. Remember, he owned a newspaper for a sure. long time, and he wrote a lot of editorials. So the man was – and the newspaper was very successful. Um, so he wasn't dumb at all. In terms of his economic record, one of the things that we have been led to believe about the stock market crash of 1929 was that the Roaring Twenties, the Jazz Age, and the opulence of that decade – help pave the way for the stock market crash and the Great Depression. In your view, um, what was Harding's record on the economy? Well, most people don't realize the economy was in bad shape when he ran for president and when he entered office in, in March of 1921. The, the economy fell into a depression in January of 1920. It's often been referred to as the forgotten depression in American history. Most people don't even know we had one. Well, in 1920? 1920, 1920, right, right, yeah. It it fell 
considerably. The, the unemployment rate went from almost nothing because of World War One up to 12 percent. You had inflation, all of the things that you see with a depression. And Harding came in with a laissez-faire conservative uh, approach. We're not going to stimulate the economy. We're not going to spend and tax and do all these kind of things. We're going to cut taxes massively. The top rate on the taxes under Wilson had gone up over 70%. Spending was through the roof. He cut spending and cut taxes and cut regulations and things like that, and the economy boomed throughout the 1920s. We've never had a a decade of that type of prosperity, averaging 7% of growth a year. Surplus has paid off a third of the national debt, cut income taxes four times. I mean, it's a phenomenal record that he doesn't get credit for. But then they, but then liberal progressive historians are going to say, well, if you're going to give him credit for it, you got to give him credit for the bust of 1929. No, I don't. Most of that's been blamed on the Federal Reserve, and rightfully so. The Federal Reserve did a lot of damage in 1929 to bring on the depression. In terms of uh, his, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Ryan Walters. He's the author on this President's Day of The Jazz Age President, defending Warren G. Harding. He makes a uh, very compelling case uh, that Warren G. Harding is not one of the worst presidents we've ever had, and uh, his reputation deserves a bit of a rehabilitation. Now, uh, a lot of people who defend certain presidents, whether it's Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, or others, uh, John F. Kennedy, they always make the distinction between the president's policies and the president's personal character. Uh, Harding's personal character have has been attacked just as much of his, as his policies have. W- what about this reputation that Harding enjoys as a philandering drunk? How true is that? Right. Um, it's been blown out of proportion. Now he'd like to have a good time. Let's not let's not gloss over this. I mean, he uh, he did enjoy a drink, and he did have at least two extramarital affairs earlier in his, in his life, even when he was in the U.S. Senate, but not while he was president. That's where I draw the line. Um, the, 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 the story is, well, he had all these wild parties in the White House and you know, drinking and women, and you see all this kind of stuff portrayed in, in movies and different things. That's not true. I mean, I found sources inside the White House that said no women came into the White House to see uh, Harding at any time. He wasn't messing around in the White House. He, even the Secret Service agent uh, wrote memoirs and said no women came to see Harding at any time, and and none of the none of that kind of stuff is true. So when you look at the primary sources, people that were actually there, uh, you get a much different story than these political attacks that historians have taken and run with for over a hundred years to really just destroy his reputation. But again, he did have some affairs. He had at least one illegitimate child. We know now is his through DNA. Um, so yeah, he's got some you know he's got some black marks in his private life, but he didn't he didn't have wild parties in the White House. In, in in your view, what were Harding's biggest successes? Turning the economy around. Um, that had to be the first thing that happened. Uh, you had to do that before you could do anything else. But, I mean, look at everything. I mean, reversed our intervention as foreign policy. Um, I have a chapter called Harding the Healer. He, he pardoned political prisoners that Woodrow Wilson um, – People were thrown in jail for opposing World War One. Um, he pardoned and let him out of office. He called for equality for Black Americans, a civil rights bill, an anti-lynching uh, uh, bill. Uh, went to Birmingham, Alabama, and spoke to a segregated audience there and said, uh, "Blacks deserve equal treatment." That's very, very courageous mm-hmm. at the time. He does not get credit for that. I mean, look at Wilson and FDR's record on race; they're deplorable. 
yet we put them in the top ten and Harding's down at the bottom. So he did a lot to heal the country from the divisions of World War One, the violence that broke out in 1919, um, uh, turned the economy around, uh, repaired our relations with Latin America and other nations. So he's got a, a good record when you look at all of it together. Now, Harding was a conservative, and I know your publisher, Regnery, and I used to work for Salem, which was uh, the uh, the parent company or the mm-hmm. sister company of, uh, of Regnery, Regnery. Usually has an interest in promoting conservative authors on a wide variety of subjects. Is there an ideological component uh, to what you're doing here? Are you, in part by defending Harding, also defending conservatism? No doubt. No doubt about it. And a lot of these things come down to one's ideology. A lot of a lot of these historians, particularly in you know in history departments at universities across the country, I mean they're notoriously liberal top heavy. I mean, you've got some departments that have no Republicans or no conservatives. And we know that, and that's okay. But, and that's why they like Wilson and FDR. I mean, I'm a conservative. I don't hide it. I don't try to, I don't try to say I'm unbiased. I'll tell you straight up I am. So yeah, I am defending conservatism, particularly in terms of the economy um, and the way that these things were handled in those days. So yes, yeah, a big part of it. It was over 100 years ago when Harding was elected. He did not even serve a full term because, as you point out, he died in office. Why does Harding matter today? 100 years after he was elected, why should we even still be talking about this fella? Well, I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn, particularly in terms of the economy. I mean, our economy is not in good shape today. And for some reason, since 1929, and when Herbert Hoover was in office and an FDR and Ford, we seem to want to stimulate the economy every time it gets in trouble instead of instituting conservatism. But look, Harding was a, a just a regular guy. He was not a academic. He was he didn't come from a prominent family. He was just a small town guy, small town business owner. Got into politics, became president because he wanted to help the American people. He was one of the nicest guys that we've ever had in office. Even his enemies say that say that he was one of the nicest people they ever met. Um, he just wanted to do the right thing for the American people and just serve and do the best he could do. And I just don't think, you know, smearing him the way he's been smeared um, is fair to him. How did he come to be on the receiving end of 100 years of historical criticism? I think if you look at the historians, um, and a lot of scholars have pointed this out, and it, 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 it started almost 100 years ago when he died, because when he died, and then all these scandals started keep coming out, and a lot of people backed off. When he died, and his wife died the next year, 1924, uh, they built a memorial in Marion, Ohio for him. And Calvin Coolidge was his successor, and Coolidge wouldn't even go up there and dedicate it because the news stories about Harding were so bad. He thought it would hurt him politically. Wow. It was not until Herbert Hoover in 1931 went and dedicated the memorial. And he gave a real good speech defending Harding. So Hoover's one of the first ones that really stepped out and defending because uh, people said, well, he was just a terrible president, and, and, and they just left it at that. And then that's all anybody ever learned in school or anywhere else. And, of course, it's the left um, leftists that are right, the, the, the textbooks and other books. Most people don't know anything about him. They've never really looked. All they knew is what somebody told them in school. They don't know anything about their policies. They never looked at it. And when you point it out, a lot of people, they'll say, well, I didn't know that or I didn't know this. Mm. So that's all I'm trying to do is to point people to his record and say, look, there's another side to this. Don't just look at it from what the progressives are saying. Look, there, there is 
there is more here than meets the eye. Are you hoping to do with this book what other historians have done for people like Dwight Eisenhower and Ulysses Grant and improve his historical reputation? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what I'd like to be able to do. Now, are we going to get him um, on Mount Rushmore? No. (laughs) Or in the top ten? No. Uh, But I'm trying to get him at least off the bottom. And there's been other scholars, other historians that have. Uh, John Dean wrote one in 2004. Um, I just tried to dig deeper and pull out more of his policies. And so people can take a second look at it. And people are going to say, well, are you afraid of being a historical revisionist? Now, I don't care what name these people throw at you. I don't believe in – I'm not a revi- – the revisionist are the one that wrecked his reputation, in my opinion. I'm just trying to restore it to what it was. A man who got over 60% of the vote in 1920, when he died in 1923, had a funeral procession that people said was as big as, uh, as, as big as the country we've seen since Lincoln was assassinated in 1865. So he was very much beloved by just the regular common people in the country. It's the academics and the establishment that hate him, and that's, of course that's what prevails. It's interesting that you mentioned that, uh, that John Dean book. Dean, of course, served in the Nixon administration, was at the heart of the Watergate controversy. He's no stranger to controversy himself. Uh, He's endured a lot of criticism on both the left and the right. What was your Mm -hmm. impression of that John Dean book on uh, on Harding? Did you find that it was pretty accurate? Yeah, I actually enjoyed it. And that's and. Of course, Dean Dean grew up in Marion, Ohio. Um, that's he, so he was a really a good guy to write the book. It was it's part of the Schlesinger American President series. They're not mm-hmm. very thick books. Right, they're they're kind of small. Yeah, and a lot of people had a lot of criticism. Well, I would like to have seen more. And I, that's one of the things that kind of whet my appetite to do it, to do something bigger. I didn't want to do some five hundred page uh, huge thing, but I wanted to do more and look deeper into his policies, deeper into the man. And what he was trying to do, and that's that's what I did. You've also written about. Uh, but by the way, what's the best way for people to get this book if they're interested in this book, The Jazz Age President? It's on Amazon and and um, Barnes and Noble, and I think it's in, in in some Barnes and Noble stores. All right, so wherever books are sold online yeah. and many bookstores in person, the book's called right. The Jazz Age President. Right. That's it. Okay, yeah, now it is, it, it is President's Day, so people the whole day are going to be trading presidential trivia questions with one another. And one of the, the frequent questions that any uh, beginner in tri- in presidential trivia is used to getting is, "Who's the only president for now to serve two non consecutive terms?" And the answer, of course, is New York's own. Grover Cleveland. Yeah. Uh, New Jersey claims him as well. You've written uh, about Grover Cleveland yeah. as well. Uh, tell me where you think his reputation lies among previous presidents. Uh, Cleveland was was an extraordinary president. He's he's in he's in my top five best presidents, no question about it. I mean, I'm a Southerner. I'm originally from Mississippi, but I love Grover Cleveland and Hardy. So I like Northern presidents, but Cleveland he, he's a, usually about the about the middle. But I think again, if you look at his record, his is a lot better. But again, he's a he's a Jeffersonian conservative. I call him the last Jeffersonian president because he was, um, and he's been kind of slandered. Um, he took on the worst depression in the 19th century, which rivaled the Great Depression in its severity, and did a lot to straighten that depression. Now, by the time he left office in 1897, um, the economy was growing again at a pretty rapid rate. But he didn't get credit for that. So, um, in your in your judgment, the Cleveland 
success is similar to Harding in that it's their stewardship of the economy and economic recovery that that gives them a better reputation than the one that they've enjoyed historically. Yeah, and they both came in following more progressive, more liberal uh, presidents that were doing more and spending more and trying to get an activist government and an activist presidency. Cleveland was like Harding. They were a lot alike, even though they were in different parties, but they believed a lot of the same things, that the president was not a king. The president was not a dictator. He was never meant to be that way, signing executive orders and doing all these kind of things. Now, that's not what the president was designed to do at all. That is what they've tried to make him today. He's like he's almost like a king today. But right. That's a, not the way he a, was. A monarch without a crown. It is yeah. interesting that whatever party's not in power, they always point at the president that's in power and uh, the executive orders and the executive mm-hmm. overreach and ignoring Congress. And they always say, oh, look, the president's becoming a king. The irony is that, of course, usually whatever the opposition party is, they're both probably right. Because we've seen the power of the presidency mm-hmm. grow, irrespective of uh, which party is in power. Ryan, I spoke. I'm looking forward to giving it a more careful reading as soon as my son start, starts sleeping more than four and a half hours in a row. <laughs> well, well, God bless you, sir. I hope you, I hope you can. Hope Thank you. Get you. Sleep soon. Best of luck with the book. Uh, I appreciate your scholarship and all the work you put into this. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. All right. The book is The Jazz Age President Defending Warren G. Harding. We've been talking with its author, Ryan S. Walters. If you want to comment, give me a call, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. I'm back in the saddle again Out where a friend is a friend Where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly Jimson wheat Back in the saddle again Riding the range once more Toting my old 44 Where you sleep out every night And the only law is right Back in the saddle again The great Gene Autry, the only entertainer to have all five stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one each for radio, recording, motion pictures, television, and live performance. One of the most phenomenal entertainers of any era, that is for sure. Uh, Give me a call if you want to comment on anything we've covered thus far, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. It is Monday. It is President's Day. I know uh, a lot of you are off today. I know a lot of other radio shows are off today. I'm here. uh, I, I love being here on President's Day because I love discussing presidential Trivia. I don't want to say I don't like to use the term that I'm a presidential history buff because I'm not. Uh, I speak to so many people, not just in the course of interviewing them, but just in the course of my everyday life that are real presidential trivia buffs. They know all about the presidents. I don't. I am somebody that's very interested 
in American history in general, but the history of the presidency specifically. So I would never refer to myself as a as a buff, but I am certainly interested in a lot of presidential history. You know, in my I'm reading a book now, and again, I, I say I'm reading it, but I'm not. The level of reading that I've gotten done over the last three months is almost non-existent. I used to be able to read a, like a pretty significant sized book in a week or two. I, I mean, a nice sized book. Now, I I don't remember the last time that I've opened a book that wasn't for work. It really, that's the one thing that I'm hoping, as I said to uh, Ryan Walters, as Carmine matures, that I can uh, that I can get back to reading a little bit more. That's one of the things that I miss. Somebody asked me this weekend. If you had 14 hours, 16 hours, whatever the number they gave me, what would you do? And the answer is, aside from sleep, read, write, and watch television. Because I have um, this stack of books of subjects that I'm interested in and curious about that has only grown. And uh, I have this list of correspondence. I have all this list of letters that I have to write, list of memos that I have to write, including stuff for work that I just haven't gotten to. So uh, we'll we'll get there. Hey, by the way, you know who's starting work today? And I want to wish her luck if she is listening to me. I'm sure she is listening to the podcast uh, a little bit later. My wife, Rachel, is going back to work today. She has been on maternity leave for the last three months. And... Uh, Want to wish her the best of luck, and uh, I know, uh, <laughs> I know it's it's going to be it's going to be a challenge, but uh, certainly we need the money uh, with her going back to work. So we have a babysitter starting today, who's going to stay in our house for four hours a day from nine to one, while I sleep, hopefully, and while Rachel works, and then I'll hopefully wake up around one, be able to look after that uh, that young crying young that crying young man. And then um, and then I'll look after him until five and then Rachel could take him and I can get back to not get back to. We get to working on the show. I will say we gave um, you know, we've had such a good run with our cat Melchizedek. It's really my wife's cat. It's my stepcat. But honestly, the cat has grown on me significantly over the years. You may remember while Rachel was with child, I uh, just described to you how he was urinating in the bathtub downstairs, right? So, lo and behold, a few months ago, I I think after the baby was born, but it may have even been before, but I think it was after the baby was born, he stopped, stopped urinating in there. And Rachel says, you know what? Let's leave this bathroom door open now. Let's not close it. Let's leave it open and see what he does. Doesn't do anything. Doesn't do anything. He's been pretty well behaved. So yesterday, Sunday, we go to give him a bath. Right. And we have this, we, you know, we bathe him in the sink and we have this little thing that you put in the sink that he sits in. I don't know what you call it, but whatever. It's like a mini, it's a baby bathtub. And, but it's like a rubbery mat kind of a thing. Lo and behold, we found, we keep this in the bathtub to dry out after we use it. This cat, Melchizedek, had urinated all over Carmine's bathtub. You imagine? I mean, you talk about nerve. I tell you, somebody's seeming awfully jealous. So best of luck. The man. (laughs) Thank you, Ric Flair. So best of luck to Rachel on her first day back at work. Best of luck 
to my son Carmine, his first day with a non-familial babysitter. And best of luck to me in that hopefully I'll get to sleep for four or five interrupted hours. That would be nice. 800-848-WABC. Jay in Cincinnati has been patiently holding. Hello, Jay. Frank, excellent program. Thanks. Can I get college credit for uh, the Frank Marino after midnight <laughs> show? I don't think so. I don't think so. They may give you college demerits. They may take away the credits you already have, Jay. Absolutely love history. Uh, from southwest Ohio, and there's three presidents from down this way. We got uh, Harrison, who was in for a very short time, and Taft and Grant. Well, aren't, aren't both Harrisons from there? Uh, possibly. I, I, yeah, I, I thought think, they I were. Think you're right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were. Uh, So, uh, yeah, uh, Benjamin Harrison, of course, was between the two Grover Cleveland administrations. Thanks for the call there, Jay. 800-848-WABC. Mark is in Stanford, Connecticut. Hello, Mark. Yeah, the great Bob Grant used to always mention Grover Cleveland. He would say that public office is a public trust. I did a little research a long, long time ago. As you may know, during the Civil War, if you had enough cash, you could pay $300. It was an actual thing where you could pay the $300. And you can get a schlub, a regular schlub, to take your place. So I always wondered, I used to listen to Bob Graham when he would talk about Cleveland, but I wonder if his administration, or if he'd, he had even survived had he took his rifle place and served in the Civil War. That's just something to think about because we always hear about draft evasion or uh, service, evading the service for you know different presidents. But Grover Cleveland paid, and there was violent riots about the Civil War, about that particular policy. So he paid someone three hundred dollars to uh have his place taken that's one thing and can i just mention something about richard nixon quickly though mark quickly because sure. we're up against he the was under the ring of rockefeller he was rockefeller's lawyer in in, in rockefeller's office between in, in between 62 and 70 he introduced some of those liberal policies one of the reasons why uh, it opened up to china and that uh uh uh, 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 All right. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Appreciate it. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, do you remember the other day when my friend Dom Crispino was on this show, the attorney turned criminal, uh, turned radio host, turned criminal again, turned freed man? Interesting guy. Um, And he texted me yesterday. And uh, it's just, I'm very proud of this. And I'm going to share this with you. Let me pull... um, Pull this up. He basically said, um, uh, see, now, of course, my phone freezes when I need to read it. All right. Uh, So, oh, okay. Here here we go. Thanks for the chance to participate on your show again. FYI, one of my wife's good friends has a brother 
at the DOCCS Wallkill facility in Ulster County near the Sullivan County border. That's a prison. And he heard me on your show. More proof that you are number one in the prisons and jails. I'm very proud of that. Um, you know what? Not There's not a group that I'd rather be number one with than the prisoners. If you are listening to this show right now and you're incarcerated, you know that I'm thinking about you. Now, well, what leads me to mention Dom is I had a whole bunch of legal issues that I was going to bring up with Dom, and we got to many of them, but we didn't get to all of them. And this was one of the stories that I was going to bring up with him on whatever day he was here, Wednesday or Thursday, and I didn't get to it. And then lo and behold, Michael Smirkanish does this story on his show on Saturday. And it goes to show you that Smirkanish and I are on the same page again. Because I was going to do this story on Thursday, and then I didn't do it. I got caught up with, you know, Ask Frank Anything on Friday. And then Smirkanish does it on Saturday. So now it looks like I'm following Smirkanish again. But I swear to you, honestly, I was going to do this story last week. However, um, he did have the district attorney in San Francisco on talking about this story and made a little bit of news. Let me tell you what the situation is. And look, I've been very critical of the DA in San Francisco. I have to tell you, on this issue, I think he's 100% right. Um, a victim's rape kit right, was taken in San Francisco. And they used it. You know, a rape kit is when you uh, a woman is raped and you take DNA samples and other, primarily DNA samples, from her her body in order to identify who raped her. So a victim's rape kit was used to identify her as a suspect in another case. So understand what the police did in San Francisco. A woman was raped. They said, all right, come on in. We'll take your DNA, take this rape kit. And the police said, whoa. Well, forget about this guy that raped you. We found your DNA at the scene of another crime. So this apparently is not unique to San Francisco and is fairly widespread. So the San Francisco police are using DNA samples collected from sexual assault victims to identify them as possible suspects in other crimes. That's according to the DA. The victims of sexual assault whose DNA samples are used in this way are being treated like criminals. That's what the district attorney, Kessa Bodine, is saying. This was Kessa Bodine on CNN's Michael Smirconish show on Saturday explaining why his office is dropping the charges against this woman. So I want to be very clear. You're following what's, what happened here? A woman was raped, and they used the DNA that they got from her rape kit to arrest her for another crime. The DA, and I agree with this completely, the DNA, the uh, DA says, no, we're not prosecuting her. This was Kessa Bodine on uh, CNN Saturday. I mean, the critical issue here is victim safety and eliminating barriers to survivors of sexual assault coming forward and cooperating. We know that rape and sexual assault are among the most serious and least reported crimes. 
that my office deals with. Our priority is public safety and supporting victims and holding those who harm them accountable. And to do that effectively, we need survivors to trust us. We need them to trust police. And when we learned that the San Francisco Police Department had used a victim's DNA without their consent in ways that violate the California Constitution's Victims' Bill of Rights, known as Marcy's Law, had likely violated the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. We were outraged because of the disincentive that this could create for future survivors of serious crime to come forward and cooperate. We need them to trust law enforcement. We need them to know that we have their back, that we will protect them, that we will believe them, that we will stand with them. Boudin is absolutely right. Absolutely right. If you create a situation where women, or men for that matter, but primarily women, are raped and they're afraid to come forward because they themselves might be arrested for something, that is an incredibly dangerous situation. So aides to the DA uh, said the office learned of the practice last week. First of all, it's amazing that they didn't know about this, that the police have been doing this, and they didn't know about this. So aides to Bodine said the the office learned of the practice last week when the police department identified a woman who was recently arrested on a felony property crime charge based on DNA samples that she had given earlier when she reported that she had been sexually assaulted. Her DNA had been collected by investigators in order to identify her attacker. I can't even believe I just read that. I can't even, I cannot believe that any police department in any jurisdiction in the country would take a sexual assault victim's DNA and use that to arrest her. Am I wrong? Do you think this is effective policing? I'd love to hear from you, uh, if you're a cop especially, if you're a, a lawyer especially, but if you're a regular person, I would love to hear your view on this. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC, 1234567, open lines. If you want to jump on board, now's the time. Here's the situation. Now, you remember Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor? He was, as other mayors did, Ed Koch, Mike Bloomberg, he maintained what they called at the time a sanctuary city policy. Now, when Rudy Giuliani used the word sanctuary city, he didn't mean it by uh, to to mean the same thing that today's mayors mean it. These days, it means not cooperating at all with federal law enforcement. What Giuliani said was, "Look, if you're the victim of a crime, nobody's going to ask your immigration status, right?" And it was a sound policy because you don't want somebody that gets robbed, that gets assaulted, being terrified to come forward and cooperate with the police because they get deported. They don't want that. And Giuliani was right, and other mayors were right, to maintain that philosophy. In my view, it is exactly the same with this. Now, here is the most alarming part of this whole situation. Listen to what Bodine, the district attorney in San Francisco, tells Smirkanish about what other police departments are doing. And here, sadly, the San Francisco Police Department Crime Lab, as we believe many other labs around the country are doing, treated this survivor who had the courage to come forward to submit her body to poking and prodding and examination after the most horrific, humiliating, degrading violation any of us can imagine. 
They then treated her like a piece of evidence rather than a human being. It is unacceptable, and it will not be allowed to continue on my watch. Again, I never thought I would say it. Good for you, Mr. Boudin. I completely agree, and I hope every district attorney in the United States takes that their cue from him on this. But did you hear what he said? Many other labs are doing this around the country. This is going on all over the country. This is apparently not unique to the San Francisco Police Department. The police are taking rape kits from women who are victimized and using it to collect evidence that incriminates them. In my view, this flies in the face of the Bill of Rights, especially the uh, the provision regarding self-incrimination. And it's just bad policing. I think it's bad prosecutorial policy, bad police policy. And I think the DA did exactly the right thing here by, one, dropping the charges against this woman, and two... Saying, well, no, we're not going to do this going forward. If this is how police departments in other jurisdictions are going to treat the DNA that they get from rape kits, then they absolutely ought to warn the women that are that are agreeing to cooperate with the police. They absolutely ought to say when they take the rape kit from this woman, just so you're aware, anything you say, anything, any DNA that we get from this can and will be used against you. We need a DNA version of the Miranda law here because evidently these people are participating in helping find their rapists. That's what they think they're doing when in actuality they're incriminating themselves. I find this outrageous. I am glad the DA is doing what he's doing here. And I hope every DA in America does the same thing. And I do not understand the mentality of any police department that would use DNA collected from a rape kit in this manner. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Agree, disagree, whatever you like. One, two, three, four open lines. Let me begin with Paul in Nutley, New Jersey. Hello, Paul. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, you know, I, I have a little bit different viewpoint on this, and I think for years there's been a database of people with fingerprints, and there is a database of DNA, and, you know, we see cold case murder um, cases that are solved by a family member that had DNA, and I just think it needs a little more discussion before you, you know, flatly say – that um you know that dna from a rape victim should not be used for a crime you know for example what is the crime you know what if she committed murder you know does the murder does the rape trump the murder that we couldn't look into it so i don't know i i just think it needs i have the utmost sympathy for a rape victim but i think we need some you know more discussion and I think, um, like I said, the analogy would be like somebody that has a fingerprint on file and, you know, does does a rape victim automatically become immune from getting prosecuted from any crime because of her fingerprint? So that's it, good, great points that all, think. Paul. And I don't know if you saw the interview, but um, that was actually what you just said, not the fingerprint comparison, but the. Murder um, reference and so forth. Smirkanish brought up with the uh, with the DA. And look, I realize I'm guilty of a little 
oversimplification here. But my view is, uh, to answer your question, is yes, when it comes to sexual assault victims, if the evidence is acquired through investigating that sexual assault, that evidence should not be able to be used against them. However, I would be willing to kind of meet you halfway in that at least if we are going to use evidence against them to investigate other crimes, that these women have to be warned in advance so that they know whether or not they're incriminating themselves by cooperating with police. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's good. And I think um, in the, in the new age of DNA, there's no, there's no secrets anymore. And, um, you know, if that rape victim's DNA wasn't used in this crime, but a, a family member had DNA we could have found her or, you know, the, um, um, the criminal justice system could have found her through a family member's DNA. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you met me halfway. And I think that's probably a reasonable thing. But I just think uh, it needs more discussion. And I think that, um, you know, that somebody that commits a crime, um, you know, that might get away with it otherwise the fact that there's um, DNA or fingerprint evidence from a rape shouldn't give them a carte blanche to create other to um, to commit other crimes. Yeah, fair enough. I, I get that, Paul, and thank you for the call. I do think sexual assault victims are in a special category here. I, I really do. Um, there are there are so many. There's such a trauma to being a sexual assault victim. And very often there could be a reluctance to cooperate with law enforcement to begin with that to then say to them, Oh, or, you know, the old line from animal house. Oh, you messed up. You trusted us. I, I think that really would send a chilling effect to rape victims around the country, not to cooperate with police. And then what is the, what is the logical Next step in that. That means a lot of people are getting away with raping women. So uh, I'm all for investigating crimes and using evidence from crime scenes to find out who's responsible for committing those crimes. But if a woman's raped and she's willing to go through a rape kit and cooperate with police to them, to the police to then turn around and say, oh, well, we found that you were involved in some property crime five years ago, uh, don't leave just yet. Try on that pair of silver bracelets. I don't think that that is a good thing for anybody, except maybe the rapist that it was is now going to be more likely to get away with his next rape because the next rape victim won't want to cooperate with police. 800-848-WABC. Just as I said with Mayor Giuliani and others, not questioning the immigration status of crime victims. Because you want those crime victims working with the cops. You don't want them being terrified they're going to be deported. 800-848-9222. Adrian is on the Upper West Side. Hello. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I think it's outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. Um, you know, you have a right to your DNA, and they don't have a right to use it for whatever they want. This is... Um, I think it would definitely have a chilling effect on people coming forward that are victims. And also, I, I didn't quite get that analogy of the last caller. Maybe I missed something. But you have fingerprints on file. 
not as victims, but if if you're a criminal and well, it, look, I, I get. Look, I think the fingerprint analogy fails a little bit as well. But I think what he was saying is. Look, there's all sorts of ways that you get your fingerprints in a database. If you uh, apply for certain jobs, you have yeah, to be I fingerprinted. Yeah, my fingerprints are in a database. So I understand that. That's why I didn't understand that analogy with respect to this particular set of, of facts. Yeah. Uh, but I, I feel also, how do you know that they're not going to use it to, um, you know, you could, you could be set up. <laughs> if they can use it this way, they could use it any way they want. Or supposing you're accusing a prominent person of raping you and the prominent you know how do you know that the cops i just don't trust what they would be doing with it necessarily is for the benefit of the victim neither do i neither do i so uh all right that's all thank you (laughs) 800-848-WABC that's uh, 800-848-9222 max is in port washington hello max hey frank I, i think you're great but you're way off on this one this is, this is more liberal policies that's taken us down a rabbit hole. Why is it that because a person is raped, they can't be a criminal? If you're a criminal, you're a criminal. You, you need to be charged and convicted if we can convict you. It doesn't matter if you're raped. These are more liberal policies, soft on criminals, that's ruining the country. Just let me ask you one question before you hang up on me. I'm not going to hang up you on want, you. Okay, would you want, and I listen to you every night, you're great. Thank you. Would you Would you want George Floyd as a neighbor? See, this is what I ask all my liberal friends, and I'm African-American. This is what I ask all my liberal friends when they defend these kinds of guys. Would you want him as your neighbor uh, with ne- your wife and kids? First of all, no, I wouldn't, but I, I'm not okay, sure. Then what? I'm not sure how George Floyd. Yeah, right. But I'm not. So you wouldn't want them as your neighbor. Right. But I also wouldn't want George Floyd killed in the course of being arrested. I I, I don't want him killed either. But uh, but just criminals. Yeah, agreed, Max. But what I was saying is I don't think rape victims have carte blanche to commit crime. However, well, no, 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 I'm not. My problem, Max, is with the way that the evidence against them... What difference does it make well, how we get the evidence? Well, that's dangerous. Be, well, Max, Max, hang on. I didn't interrupt you, so just let me, let me respond. So my issue is with how the evidence is acquired, right? The Bill of Rights and the Fifth Amendment specifically guarantees you an opportunity to not incriminate yourself. In my view, this is doing exactly that. You're incriminating yourself. So I, I got a question for go you. Go ahead. I don't want to use your wife or your child, okay, but just in, anyone in general. Would it matter to you how the police got the evidence of, uh, of uh, and arrested some guy if he raped someone's wife or someone's daughter or he murdered someone's son? Would it matter to you how they got the evidence if they caught this guy and took him off the street? It, absolutely not. I'll also tell okay. you that. Uh, Max, difference? hang on. But I'll, he, well, here's the difference. I will also tell you that. If my wife was raped, I would want to do everything I possibly could in my power to get her to cooperate with police to find that rapist. And if she was reluctant for half a second because four years ago she committed a crime and she didn't want to give that DNA away to police and the logical consequence of that is her rapist gets to remain free, that to me is a tragedy far greater than, um, you know, than anything else. Okay, I got another question for you. What if that rapist committed a crime and, and, and then he, 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 the police uh, 
caught him for, I don't know, for something else. And then they used his, the, and, they, and he got stopped for a traffic incident, whatever it was, drinking, driving. And they used his fingerprints or DNA to convict him of raping your wife. Well, Would you I want think him often. Of course not. Uh, but I think it's okay. A, well, it's I, hang on, Max. Thing. But Max, no, it's not the same thing because the example you gave is evidence acquired through the investigation of one of him committing one crime being used to link him to another crime. Whereas the ev- the example that I'm giving is someone's a crime victim, and the evidence of investigating their their rapist is used to then incriminate the victim for an unrelated crime. You, the okay, the so comparison you gave... Was sorry? Uh, no, what if the man was raped? What if the man was raped and he went to the police uh, and he said, I've been raped? The, and now they use his DNA and they say, wait, this is the same guy that raped Frank Weiss. Well, the, my, my position is, is still the same. I think if you're a victim of really? sexual assault, you should not be able to... Uh, incriminate yourself as the perpetuator of another crime, uh, Max. I, I appreciate it. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Tom is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Okay. Um, look, I'm a black man, right? When we haul a police brutality, no, we're lying. It didn't happen, all right? We don't have no right to privacy if they let this happen. It's going to be misuse of DNA, meaning they snatch whoever they want off the street and say that she made this statement and all that. So we have a right to look up your DNA. I'm telling you, that's going to come. It's going to come. Because we holler police brutality and our lying eyes, we look right at it on the, on, on the video. But no, it's not re- police brutality. This is what's going to happen. I'm telling you. Wait, wait, happen. but Tom, I think you I mean, you lost me a little bit with the police brutality discussion. I'm not sure I understand. So, okay, what's going to happen? I'm saying, as black people, we cry police brutality. Got it. Right. And everybody says no. They look right at the table, and say well, no. That's not Bruce. I, I don't think Bruce everybody. Brutality. I don't think everybody and, says no. I mean, I mean, you see that with okay, the George I know, Floyd I know, I'm, incident it's not in that Derek like Chauvin that, but, was convicted. But, yeah. Okay. But I'm just saying it's going to be abused because there is racism in the police department, but nobody wants to, wants to say it is. So this is going to be misused by the police department, and they're going to get away with it, man. Well, they're going to get away with it. Man. Tom, thank you. I I don't see the comparison with police brutality. I don't. Uh, I think that um, this raises a lot of interesting legal issues and constitutional issues and rights related to privacy. Uh, but uh, I don't see the comparison with police brutality. We'll continue with your calls in a minute, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. It was raining hard. In Frisco, I needed one more fare to make my night. A lady up ahead waved to flag me down. She got in at the light. Oh, where you going to, my lady blue? It's a shame you ruined your gown in the rain. She just looked out the window. She said, 16 parks, I think. 
something about the great Harry Chapin uh, singing Taxi. I'm a big fan of Harry Chapin. It's a tragedy that he was taken from us uh, at such a young age. I mean, you talk about a guy recorded 11 albums in nine years as a young man. And all 14 singles that he released became hits on at least one national music chart. Some of you who've been listening to the show for a while may remember I interviewed his daughter last year uh, at the 40th anniversary of his death. I really enjoyed speaking with her. I thought she had a great, great um, uh, perspective on her father and his legacy. Talking about this story... um, and I must say, I you know normally I feel like I can predict where the audience's opinion is going to go, even when I am not with the audience. But I must say, I am a little surprised at the number of people that disagree with me on this. Talking about this story where a victim's rape kit was used to identify her as a suspect in another case. It's my position that if you're a rape victim... The DNA that they take from you should not be used to incriminate you. I thought that was a pretty, I think my position is a pretty uncontroversial one. But so far, anyway, I'm in the minority. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Rob is in Westchester. Hello, Rob. Hi, how you doing? Uh, so my opinion is if they do an independent investigation of a separate crime, and this rape victim then comes up as a legitimate suspect, and they get a judge to sign a warrant for right. DNA. Right, that's exactly. And go back in and get her DNA instead of having to do, like, another cheek swab or something. I think that is totally reasonable. Totally reasonable. Uh, that is how criminal investigations usually work. You don't usually have a, a criminal come to you and say, hey, I, I'm the victim of another crime, Help me, and then uh, they turn around and say, "Oh well, tough. You know, we're we're arresting you instead." I think you're 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 exactly right, Rob. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Leo is in Manhattan. Leo, are are you the fellow that always writes to me on Instagram and say I, I don't give him enough time to talk? Oh, a long time ago. <laughs> okay, got it. All right, just make it sure. Now we have time, Leo. So the the the, the okay, Frank, I, moment I, is yours. I just wanted to ask you. You before stated when he was talking about not having enough time to read books. Now, when you have little Carmine, uh, I wanted to know because you were saying that you got to wait until Carmine's going to mature to have time again for your hobby to read more books. Does that mean that you and your wife not planning to have more kids? Well, uh, it's a wanna... good it's a good question. You know, I mean, that's something that uh, that we're going to talk about. I imagine. I, uh, I I I certainly not anytime soon. I don't think Rachel is uh, is ready for that. I, I I would love to have more, but in addition to Rachel thinking that uh, we should wait a while. Um, I'm not sure our bank account could withstand anymore at the moment. I, after paying bills yesterday, I got paid Friday, and after paying bills on, uh, you know, for, over the weekend, I have I think a hundred dollars left in my checking account. So I'm not sure where I would find the money to pay for any other children at this point. But who knows? Hopefully things turn around or improve for both of us in a couple of years. Hopefully John is listening, or maybe you're going to get the raise. Uh, John's very generous with me. Uh, I, I, uh, John's very generous with me, but as generous as John is, children are even more expensive, believe me. 
800-848-9222. We'll finish taking your calls on this and then move on to some other areas. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. uh, Two parts. Number one, I don't know where you get the self-incrimination stuff. You 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 don't know? Wait, because... In the course of it's not as if the police acquired this DNA as a result of a warrant or something. It's the, you giving it to them yourself. Well, no, I, I know what self-incrimination is, but you don't know what it is. You're, you're applying it wrong. Self-incrimination is in the court of law when you're under oath that you can't you don't have to incriminate yourself. You can take the fifth. Amendment. Right. Well, th- that's also that's all that's also self-incrimination. Well, and that's nothing to do with the police investigating or coming across the DNA. I mean, well, so I, when I, you I, read when you read the Fifth Amendment, Neil, um, what does it say? You 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 don't have to self-incriminate. You don't have to you, you don't have to incriminate yourself, right? Uh, right. right. But, that, that, but that's in the court of law under oath. No, 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 no. no. There's no investigation uh, by a liberal DA who doesn't want to prosecute for whatever reason they think is they came up with or they don't feel is right. That's nothing to do with self-incrimination. And, and as for it has everything to do with self-incrimination. No, I don't know. I don't, I don't. I don't agree with you, Frank. I don't agree with you. All right. Well, you're wrong. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Billy is in New York City. Hello, Billy. Hey, Frank. That guy. I mean, all I do is listen to the talk radio. I don't. I don't have a TV. I mean, I don't watch TV. Good that phone call. That phone call. That guy Max. And he said he was an African American guy. That was the most brilliant phone call I ever heard of all the years listening to talk radio. Yeah, he was a smart mean, guy. Was, absolutely. You should invite him on as a guest once a week. I mean, he was brilliant. You know, like a lot of people just don't have good communication skills. They they have the right position. They just can't just make their point. You know, he did it. He nailed it. No, I, I agree. I thought he was a bright guy. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Yeah. And invite him on. You guys would be good on, like, once a week you could do a show together. Yeah, I, I'm not really looking for a sh- co-host. I have to be honest, Billy. Ellen is in New Jersey. Hello, Ellen. Good morning, Frank. First of all, thank you for playing Harry Chapin, and for your kind words, I agree. He's an amazing talent, a marvelous uh, songwriter, and great humanitarian. As far as your views on uh, using the DNA we get from a woman's rape kit, I completely agree with you for two reasons. First of all, what one of the previous callers was saying about having it used incorrectly, if I'm not mistaken, we often get what they call reference DNA samples from people when they're investigating a crime. And I believe a part of the agreement when someone gives that is that if they are not found guilty of that crime, they're eliminated, their DNA is wiped from the system. So they're not in there forever and ever to have it misused. The second point uh, is we routinely give a pass to criminals in order to catch criminals that we consider are worse. For example, a low-level drug user. We will give them a pass on whatever charges the police have against them if they can give us a dealer. If it's a car theft ring, somebody steals the car, we will let them go if they give us the chop shop and on and on into higher crimes, uh, you know, organized crime and so forth. So I agree with the sentiment that two wrongs don't make a right. Giving someone a pass on uh, having committed a crime seems kind of counterintuitary, but I gotta say, in this case, you're right. Women no, who but, are but Ellen, and I want to be clear. I, I'm, I, I want to be clear. If they acquire the evidence in any other manner, I'm all for arresting them and prosecuting them. I agree. I, it's just. No, it, I agree completely. It, it's all in the manner the evidence is acquired. 
Absolutely. And that's where I think uh, that, that people are missing the point. I think they're looking too literally at the idea of two wrongs not making a right. Because if you say to someone you, that you're investigating them and you collect the evidence in an appropriate manner, yes. But in or, as you said with Giuliani, in order to prevent people from taking advantage simply because a person was not a citizen, it's better to get the criminals off the street if we can have an immigrant who's here illegally trust the police. Right. And this is, I think, the same kind of case. The, uh, thank you, Al. I appreciate that. In my view, you know, you hear a lot about politicians uh, touting the phrase, heal the rift between police and community. The best thing for everybody is for everyone who's a victim of a crime to cooperate fully with law enforcement. If you're a victim and now you start thinking, oh, should I cooperate with the police or am I going to get in trouble? That sends a chilling effect. The logical consequence of which is more rapists out on the street raping other women. Um, I don't understand it. I can't understand it. So I am with uh, the uh, San Francisco DA 100% on this. 800-848-WABC if you want to comment. We'll delve into some other issues in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. The Highwayman, the Highwayman, Silver Stallion, that's the uh, great Johnny Cash. Ugh, love the Highwayman. One of the great supergroups of all time. You know, speaking of supergroups, the thing that's fun about them, and look, when you're talking about supergroups, um, I guess Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young is an example, right? But when you're talking about supergroups... There's the the thing that makes them so fun, whether it's the Highwaymen, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, or um, the Traveling Wilburys. You 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 pick. It's all about. It's like an all star game. It's a musical all star game, in that you you have these artists that are known for other things, all working together collaboratively. It's just kind of fun. To see them together. Again, the All-Star game now with uh, Major League Baseball anyway, I, you know, I know that basketball had their All-Star game yesterday. I don't follow basketball too closely, and the same thing is not true of the Pro Bowl. But since they did away with interleague play, the All-Star game has lost some of his muster because the thing that was fun about the All-Star game is you see these matchups, Right. You see the, like these great AL pitchers 
pitching against these great NL hitters. Now, with interleague play, you see that all the time. So the novelty of the All-Star game has worn off, which is, I think, one of the reasons why people don't watch it anymore. So anyway, um, as an old-school pro wrestling fan, one of the things when there was really competitive federations that we always dream about is these different matchups. And prior to 1983 or so, they did happen. You did see the champions from different leagues, different federations, fighting against one another. It was really neat. That was like an all-star game. That was like a, the equivalent of the Highwaymen. It was a super group in, when it came to pro wrestling. Then when the major federations in the 80s and the 90s delved into two distinctly different competing entities, you really didn't see it unless one wrestler um, retired or left one federation and then went to another. And then far too often the matchups that you'd see were 10 years too late. The best example, look, there are many examples of this in the world of pro wrestling or in the world of pro boxing as well. But in the world of pro wrestling, the best example that I can think of is uh, Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan. That's the matchup that people always wanted to see. And it's a matchup that should have taken place in 1984. Instead, it took place in 1994, a time when both men, still great athletes, very much past their prime, in my view. So uh, I don't really follow uh, uh, the wrestlers that are around these days, but I do try to put wrestling on. And I try to, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I feel like I can't pick it up as easily as I could 20, 30 years ago. There's all this history that I've missed, even when I try to catch up. But I saw that Bill Goldberg was going to be wrestling this past weekend. Now, Bill Goldberg was a football player, pro football player, and then he was a wrestler in the late 90s, early 2000s, during what some people consider to be the golden age of professional wrestling. It was certainly, whether it was the golden age, it was a golden age. And he built up this incredible winning streak. He went an undefeated streak, 173 matches in a row. He beat everybody. He beat Hollywood Hogan for his world championship. And Look, there was always a lot of criticism of Goldberg, even in the late 90s. They said he wasn't that good of a wrestler. And you know what? Maybe some of the criticism was legitimate. Maybe He was not the kind of tactician uh, that a, or technical wrestler that a Ric Flair was, uh, or a Shawn Michaels, a Bret Hart. Uh, he was, was not. The thing that you couldn't take away from him, the guy was in phenomenal shape. Not an ounce of fat on him. His muscles had muscles. And the other thing, the, the other criticism of him was he was not a good a person on a mic, right? There's so many different elements to wrestling. Your in-ring performance is one. Uh, your look is another. Your abilities to speak on a mic is another. Goldberg, that was never his strength. But what you could say about Goldberg is that he, um, even though he didn't speak as well as some of the other stars of his day, he had this incredible presence. When he would come in for a match with that music that matches played, um, with a pyrotechnics and do like a um, punching of the air 
and then breathed smoke that he had inhaled from the pyrotechnics. There was just such an electricity, not just in the arena, but it, it emitted from the television set itself. And it just immediately captured your attention. So even though the match wasn't that wasn't that great usually, I mean, he did have a couple of good matches. He was present at a time when pro wrestling was at its apex. And he was instrumental. So when I saw that Bill Goldberg was going to be wrestling this weekend, I wanted to watch it. So Friday, I thought he was going to be wrestling on Friday. I saw that advertised, I thought, the previous week. So I had guests over Friday, and I, of course, put wrestling on the background. Fortunately, one of them was a wrestling fan, so he was into it as well. And then it turned out he wasn't wrestling on Friday. It was just hype for the match the next day. So the WWE did this big event on Saturday in Saudi Arabia. And um, the match takes place as I'm driving. My wife and I are driving to my mother's house, so I don't get to watch it. Then we went out the whole day. And I had tweeted a little bit about Goldberg. And by the way, the thing that I was struck by in seeing Friday, the hype for the match on Saturday, is that Goldberg is now 55 years old. The guy still is in phenomenal shape. He's in absolutely incredible physical condition. Uh, He doesn't look like any 55-year-old I've ever seen. So I was excited to watch this match. Lo and behold, people were talking to me about Goldberg all day even though the irony was that in spending time with me, they were keeping me from watching the match. So the way the WWE Network works is you can watch the events later. So as soon as I came home Saturday, it was 9.30. My wife and I got home way too late from our errands and our social functions. She wanted to go to bed. And this is the thing that kept me from, uh, from going to bed. I watched this. Now, he was wrestling... Roman Reigns, who's what they call the universal champion now. Now, he's been the champion for a long time, 570-something days. The only people in wrestling in the WWE to have longer championship reigns than Roman Reigns are Bruno San Martino, Pedro Morales, Bob Backlund, and Hulk Hogan. So this was a match of the Titans, one generate you know two different generations clashing with one another and again even though i don't follow it these days this is the equivalent of babe ruth playing against mickey mantle i, I mean that's that's significant okay this is nolan ryan pitching uh, albert pujols okay this is a generational battle and I had pretty high expectations. So I watched the match. And uh, Matt Blaze, I know you're, you're a wrestling fan. You watched the match. What were your impressions? Absolutely atrocious. <laughs> well, give me, tell me Terrible. why. Well, because, like you were saying, about these matches happening a little bit too late, Goldberg was great in his era for one reason and one reason only. He was WCW's answer to Stone Cold Steve Austin. Because the WWF at the time, now WWE, was killing them in the ratings. WCW never made a star. Every star they ever had, Vince McMahon made. Well, Diamond Dallas Page. Maybe that'd be, I mean, he wasn't even, and he came in late. Yeah, but, I mean, clearly he was a star WCW made. But I'm talking about as big as Hulk Hogan, as big as Nash and Hall. Sting? Sting. But they were, like, early on. They started in the NWA. But I'm talking about when... When Vince McMahon in the 80s was making wrestlers in the 90s, 
They all came from McMahon, and they got stolen by WCW, except for Goldberg. And Goldberg had the look, like you said. He went on the streak, but he was a terrible wrestler. We know he ended Bret Hart's wrestling career. Yeah, oh, that's the other thing. kicked him in the face. I didn't mention that. Is, um, some of the criticism, and I think rightly so, of Goldberg was not just his lack of in-ring ability and his lack of microphone ability, but is because he was not as experienced a wrestler as some of the other people that he was competing with, he hurt people. And uh, you're, you're, Matt's exactly right. Bret Hart, in his autobiography and in the documentary that's on A&E about him, he cites Bill Goldberg kicking him in the head as causing the concussion and the subsequent brain damage that ended his wrestling career and cost him literally millions of dollars. Uh, that was one thing that I didn't mention. So you were, needless to say, not impressed with the match. Not at all. And like you said, Goldberg in his prime was this big, like a monster. And you're right. When he comes out with the music and that fire, I mean, it's flaming. It's exciting. You can't even see him. Right. He's it's just exciting. engulfed in sparklers. But then when you saw him standing face-to-face with Roman Reigns, Roman Reigns is like almost twice the size of Goldberg. Yeah. Well, again, Rome, uh, Roman Reigns is 36 years old True. versus Goldberg's 55. I, uh, you know, again, I don't know that I would go as far as Matt just did and call the match atrocious, but I do think it was really disappointing. Well, For, Goldberg has three, two moves. Yeah. The yeah. spear and the jack. And he didn't get to do the second one. Right. Um, but I thought that, um, you know, even people that aren't great in-ring uh, wrestlers, Hulk Hogan comes to mind, the Ultimate Warrior comes to mind, usually when there's a big match, they can they can pull something together, right? They can, they can you know, um, Hogan, again, not a great wrestler, but when he fought the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania six, even though he didn't have a lot in his arsenal, he put it all out there. Same thing uh, with Andre the Giant to some extent at WrestleMania three. I mean, again, Hogan had three moves: body slam, leg kick, uh, you know, clothesline, maybe. Um, but you just saw none of that. It was incredibly anticlimactic. And I have to say, as somebody that watched the event just to see Goldberg in action again, because to me it's really a window into what was the case 25 years ago. And I had high hopes seeing the kind of shape that he's in now. He still, I think, looked great, um, especially for a 55-year-old, but really for any age. I thought it was incredibly disappointing. I was expecting something more. Even if there wasn't a lot of great wrestling ability, give me something. And uh, that was certainly I, not present. I knew right away it wasn't going to be great. It was the first match. You know, it's so funny I because mean, Roman Reigns is the champ. When I got to my mom's house, I got there about 1230 and I said, oh, let me put this on in the background and I'll just keep poking my head in and see when this match starts. I'll go down and watch it. And it never started because it was the first match. I had missed it. And then when I went back to watch the replay, I was uh, fast forwarding. All right, I'm keep waiting and waiting and waiting. And then it never came. And then I had to go to the very beginning. You're exactly right. But I thought maybe because it's a, a Saudi audience, they, they they try to hook you with something good to start. Maybe yeah. that. But you're right. And I, did, you, did you notice? It was very disappointing. Because it was in Saudi Arabia, all the women were covered. All the women wrestlers. Well, I, I watched the Charlotte Flair match. I didn't notice her being covered. In terms of her ring gear, they're usually wearing like... I wouldn't say bikinis, but like short shorts and tops. They all, every single woman wrestler was wearing like 
almost a bodysuit jumpsuit. I see. Totally okay. I, I actually didn't notice that. And I was on the lookout for stuff like that. But I, I did not notice that. 800-848-9222. So I tell you, so even though that was a disappointing match, I had, um, I had hoped that my wife and I would be able to watch a movie this weekend. We were not successful. But on Sunday, after I got up to do the Cats Roundtable, you know, I was up for a little while while my wife slept for a bit because she was up with our son most of the night. I was in sort of a, a wrestling uh, mood. And so I ended up perusing the documentaries that are on the WWE Network because they have some good ones. I really enjoyed the Bruno Sammartino documentary. They're not as good, not as well made as the A&E documentaries and certainly not that HBO documentary that they did about Andre the Giant. But I said, you know, let me find some wrestling personalities that I'm interested in and see how the documentary is. So I watched the 45-minute documentary on uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and I enjoyed it because I was such a fan of Bobby the Brain Heenan and they had a lot of classic footage. But I do have to say, you know, I think they're a little guilty of, again, this is one of our themes throughout the morning, revisionist history. They they portray, look, again, to the victor goes the spoils. And WWE won the wrestling wars and they ended up buying WCW. And they make, what I've noticed in a lot of these documentaries, everybody's time at WCW was just the worst time in the world. I mean, from what I could tell, Bobby Heenan spent got paid a lot of money to not travel that much and still be on TV every week. And and to, to the way they portrayed it in this documentary was he had this great career. Oh, and then he went to WCW and he was just miserable and terrible. And then, you know, I'm thinking, all right, this guy still probably made more money there than ever. Uh, but again... Uh, just like with Russia, I know not everybody wants to hear about wrestling, so we'll move on to some other things. Pete is on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Hey, Frank. I was just talking about wrestling with you. Goldberg, when he first came back, he came back for his son to watch him wrestle, and he really wasn't in shape. So now when he came back, he looked awesome. I'm telling you, he looked really good. A lot is to do with the diet that McMahon puts them on, like uh, Bob Orton Jr., my God, I, I used to, when I was working with them, because I worked a lot with uh, WWE, uh, Orton used to ask me to slip them hamburgers because he wasn't allowed to have it. They got them on a real strict diet, protein and everything. Wonderful diet. I mean, I'm not going to say that these guys never use steroids, but the diet they have them on, they pretty much build up pretty good. I went out to Bruno Sammartino's funeral in Pittsburgh. Nobody was there. You David Sammartino. Uh, well, you know, a few guys were there, but not, you know, McMahon, not any of the front, not Sergeant Slaughter, all the guys that were close to Bruno, you know. And uh, it, it was uh, David was so impressed that we came out all the way from New York that he took us to the repass, had a repass. Wow. And he discussed everything with us, how hard it was to follow up his father. You know, he had a very bad drug problem. We talked about all of that. And I know how it is. My father was a master mechanic, you know, carpentry and everything. I couldn't work with my father. I worked with my father. We bumped heads. It's very hard to work with family in a family business. That's all I really got to Pete, remind me, and again, we only have a short time here, but did you know Bruno Sammartino personally? Yes, I knew him from Jilly. So I used to go right to Sinatra and everybody. And That's he was cool. fantastic. He was a great personality. He used to drink a good, a lot. Oh, Andre, I've heard that. 
Forget about it. He could drink like uh, he could drink people under. Oh the table. well, he's supposedly the greatest drinker of all time. Pete, thanks for the call. You know, it's funny to Pete's point. Um, it is tough when your father is established in a career to go into that same profession. And uh, I've discussed this at length with John Gambling because he chose to go into a profession that not only was his father incredibly successful, but his grandfather. And think of the pressure that that involves. It's uh, it's very tough, very tough. I've discussed it with John Gotti Jr. as well. Um, very, very similar, but very, very different. Uh, commendations coming up. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Oh, you know who's going to join us in 20 minutes? The president of the Republic of Malaysia. Haven't heard of Malaysia? Well, it might not be a real country. We'll explain it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They run in a stream, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. So we're watching these developments in Russia and in, in Ukraine. And the latest is uh, apparently President Biden has agreed in principle to meet with Vladimir Putin if Russia doesn't invade uh, Ukraine. And this is being brokered by the French, Macron and the French. And um, hopefully it all works out for everybody and that we're able to avoid a war. But it is interesting If there is some sort of an invasion, it's going to center on the Donbass region, this region in eastern Ukraine where it's ethnic Russians that claim to be their own country. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Russell Bentley and one of my many disappointments in the Facebook group. And if you want to join the Facebook group, it's uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Um, is uh, there was a whole bunch of people that seemed not to get the interview. A whole bunch of people said, "Oh, I didn't like that guy because he was a communist. He lost me when he started going off on communism." But to me, that completely misses the whole point of the interview. The reason we were talking to him is because he is at the epicenter right now of one of the biggest news stories in the world. So, just so you understand the situation in Ukraine, is you have these Rus- ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine that w- we recognize them as being part of Ukraine. Russia recognizes them as being part of Ukraine. The Ukrainians recognize them as being co- part of Ukraine. You know who doesn't? They themselves don't. They said, oh, no, 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 no. We're not part of Ukraine. We're our own country, the People's Republic of Donetsk. And I believe the the other republic there is Luhansk. And I may have the pronunciation of that republic wrong. But they have taken it upon themselves to form their own country. And the question becomes, what is a country? If you claim to be a country, but... Only one other country recognizes you. 
are you a country? What if you're a country and nobody recognizes you? Are you a country? Example, the Republic of China. Republic of China, better known as? Matt Blaze, what is the Republic of China better known as? Red China. No, that is the People's Republic. Uh, I know um, of China. <laughs> I know Molly's not going to let us down on this. Oh, oh, uh, China? <laughs> no. The Republic of China is better known as Taiwan. Now, the Chinese, the People's Republic of China, mainland China, they said, no, that's not a country. The United States says, that's not a country. You know who thinks they're a country? The people that live in Taiwan. They have a president. So you have all the... Um, but So the, the, I think that's a perfect example. of the, They're an entity that looks like a country. They act like a country. But according to all the key players, the UN, the US, China, they're not a country. So what makes a country a country? And you can go down the list. The Republic of South Ossetia. Country or not? They say they are. The Republic of Kosovo. Are they a country? Not according to Serbia. There are a whole bunch of places that believe they're countries which may not be. And that leads us to Malasia. The Republic of Malasia claims to be a country. And the president of that country is going to join us in about 20 minutes. Where is the Republic of Malaysia, you might ask? It is wholly contained within the state of Nevada. It is right in the middle of the United States. United States doesn't recognize it. Neither, I don't think, I'll find out, does anybody else. So why bother? going through the exercise of claiming to be a country when almost nobody recognizes you as a country. I'm going to get into it with the president and the founder of that country coming up in about 20 minutes. Uh, so it is President's Day. So that we, uh, we ask that you listen to all the presidents with an open mind. But it's also Monday, which means it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. First commendation goes to, speaking of China, LeBron James, certainly a friend to the People's Republic of China. LeBron James has now passed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for most points in combined in the regular season and the playoffs. Now, I, I don't care what you think of LeBron James as a person or his commentary on various uh, issues. This is one of the most phenomenal athletic achievements in history. No player in league history has scored more points while wearing an NBA uniform than LeBron James. Now, that's an extraordinary accomplishment. Uh, so the least I can do is give him a commendation. I have to give a commendation to Miami Beach Fire and Rescue. A group of firefighters became heroes... To one frightened puppy in South Florida, Miami Beach Fire and Rescue said a woman was playing at a dog park with her pet on Tuesday when her dog got too close to the water's edge and fell into the bay. 
So when the ba- when the pup fell into the bay, these firefighters quickly rescued this frightened dog from the water and brought her to safety. And um, while the water by the seawall was somewhat shallow, the water still came up to the frightened dog's neck. One firefighter went down, rescued the pup, who appeared to gratefully cling to him as he brought her up the ladder to safety. You know, you see so many stories of animal abuse and animal mistreatment. To see somebody actually saving an animal, um, I I love to give them a little recognition. I want to give a little recognition and a commendation more specifically to my friends Bill and Mary Ellen Smith. Uh, Bill Smith is a friend of mine for many years, I think over 20 years. Uh, Mary Ellen, I know, through Bill since they started dating. And uh, we're very close to both of them. And so my wife and I went to visit their house on Saturday. Had a great time. And it was the first time that they were meeting little Carmine. So we were there for that purpose. Lo and behold, not only do they give us a a ton of hand-me-down baby clothes from their children, but our formula that we use for little Carmine was recalled. They gave us some old baby formula unopened that they had that we're now able to use. So they were a lifesaver in that regard. And then we go out to dinner with them, and they pick up the tab. So uh, we got to enjoy baby formula, wine, both the red and white varieties, hand-me-down baby clothes, and then a free dinner. Now, if that doesn't get you a commendation, I don't know what does. I must also give a commendation to State Senator Diane Savino. Um, John Katsimatidis, when we prepare for the Cats Roundtable on Sunday mornings, he'll ask me off air, hey, Frank, what's going on in Staten Island? So I told him a lot of people are talking about Diane Savino retiring. You know what John's reaction was? The same thing mine was. He said, oh, no, that's terrible. Diane Savino is not a good public official. She is a gifted public official. If every elected official in this state was as intelligent and as independent as State Senator Diane Savino is, we would be in a much better position. She has done an incredible job over the course of the last 18 years. She is phenomenal, and uh, she's really going to be missed, and I pray that this is not the end of her contribution to public service. She's done a phenomenal job representing the people of Staten Island and Brooklyn, and uh, I hope that Eric Adams or someone in government is smart enough to give her a commissionership or allow her to continue to contribute to government in some way because she is a model public servant, and uh, I think uh, I'm going to miss her. A great deal. And she's leaving some pretty big shoes to fill. I want to commend the, speaking of public officials, the voters in San Francisco. The recall election last week should send a wake-up call to every politician in this country, especially those of them that live in states where there is a recall mechanism. In San Francisco, probably the most liberal city in America... They recalled three school board members. Now, the school the school board had done a whole bunch of things wrong, but essentially 
the school board was doing the educational equivalent of um, painting the Titanic as it was sinking. So they couldn't even they, while they were while they had schools closed and were not taking the adequate steps to get schools reopened. They were renaming schools for racists. So they were, they were taking all these racist named schools, including for people like Abraham Lincoln, and renaming them. And then the parents were saying, excuse me, well, instead of renaming these schools, can we work on getting them reopened? And this sends a chilling message to every public official in this country about misplaced priorities and actually doing what you're supposed to do. And I hope a lot of politicians around the country learn from this. And I love this. This is populism at its finest. And it's being portrayed by one of the ousted school board members. Oh, this was a bunch of white supremacists that got together. No. San Francisco is a city that's probably 85% liberal Democrat. These were just parents that were fed up that the school board was renaming schools instead of reopening them. And the fact that this mentality is so prevalent among so many public officials around the country is frightening. And this ought to be a wake-up call to every public official in America. And I say bravo to you who organized this recall and bravo to you, the voters of San Francisco. I have to give a posthumous comment Ivan Reitman, uh, who we lost at the age of 75 last week, an incredibly talented producer and director who was instrumental in Ghostbusters, Stripes, Twins, Animal House, Howard Stern's Private Parts, the film. Um, he, I've interviewed his son, Jason, who's also a filmmaker. This was a man who changed the face of cinema in the 80s and 90s. Um, This was a man, although he was most identified with comedies, he was someone who changed the face of movie making. And I've never met him, never interviewed him, but he seems like uh, a great guy. He was born in um, what was then Czechoslovakia, but is now Slovakia, to Jewish parents who survived the Nazis. And four years later... His family fled that country to escape communism, eventually landing in Canada. They came to Canada penniless. They didn't even speak the language. And Ivan Reitman learned to play a few different instruments and in high school was part of a folk group that tried its hand at the hits of the day. And then he enrolled at uh, McMaster University in in Ontario and developed a fondness for comedy and for filmmaking and did it better than anybody. He's going to be missed. I want to denounce, excuse me, I want to commend Chahi Ariel. He is an Israeli farmer who is now responsible for growing the world's heaviest strawberry. Oh, yes, that's right. At 289 grams. They're not afraid to use the metric system out there. The strawberry is about five times the average weight of a regular berry. Uh, so kudos to you, Chahai Ariel, Ariel, for making the Guinness World Records with this strawberry. I'd love to eat that. Wouldn't you love to bite into that strawberry? Probably delicious. Uh, today is President's Day. We honor not just Lincoln, not just Washington. We honor all of the men 
All 45 of them who have served in the office of the presidency, good, bad, somewhere in between, as most of them were, we get the day off today. Well, some of you do because of the president's. It's a tough job. It's always been a tough job. And it doesn't make it any easier when you have people like me sniping at you all the time. And uh, I think we owe a debt of gratitude to all of our presidents, past and presidents, uh, past and past and present in honor of President's Day. I want to commend Carolyn Cohen. Um, You know, with everything that's going on in the world right now, is there anything that we could use more than a bunch of fun photos of cute dogs eating cheese? Well, Carolyn Cohen of Scotland has been snapping photos of dogs ranging from slobbery-mouthed dachshunds to floppy-eared retrievers making goofball expressions all while catching cheese. And these are some great photos, and you could look her up, uh, Carolyn Cohen, C-O-W-A-N. And she sells these photos in order to raise money for animal rescue. And and to help dogs. So I love the photos themselves. They really uplift people's moods, especially when times are tough like these. But I also love the fact that she's using it to raise money for dog-related charities. And finally, I promise this will be my last pro wrestling-related comment of the day. I want to give a commendation to the man that will be headlining this year's WWE Hall of Fame class, The Undertaker. I have to tell you, I was I was never the biggest Undertaker fan because I never was crazy about the supernatural aspect of his character. But he is probably the toughest man ever to step inside a wrestling ring. He had an incredible career as a pro wrestler, took more bumps and bruises than anybody, uh, was in some of the greatest matches ever. I mean, his match with Mick Foley at the uh, Hell in a Cell, that alone should be enough to put him in the pantheon of greatest wrestlers of all time. His matches with and against Kane were the stuff of legend. He was a phenomenal performer. And uh, the fact that he won 21 matches at WrestleMania was extraordinary. And he is going to be headlining this year's Hall of Fame class. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. All right. uh, Coming up in a moment, we are going to head to Malasia, the Republic of Malasia, to be specific, where we will speak with the president and the founder of that country. If you can't see me, I'm doing the air quotes. Country. Is it a country? Listen and you be the judge. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. ABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Do you recognize this particular national anthem? If you think you do, you may be right or you may be wrong. Or maybe it's the kind of national anthem that doubles as the national anthem of a couple of different countries. You know, as we talk about nation states uh, in the volatile world of foreign affairs, it's not exactly clear 
what makes a country a country. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with a fellow who uh, said that he was an elected official in the People's Republic in Donetsk. Now, if you ask the American government or the Ukrainian government or the Russian government, they all say that there is no country of Donetsk, uh, that it's just a part of the country of Ukraine. Well, there's a whole lot of countries out there that believe they're countries and yet have had a difficult time getting some international recognition on that front. Now, one of those countries is Malaysia. Now, if you haven't heard of the Republic of Malaysia, uh, then you might be thinking, well, maybe you don't know your geography of Eastern Europe that well, or maybe you're thinking, oh, it's not in Eastern Europe, but maybe it's in Africa somewhere. Uh, if you're thinking, well, maybe it's not in Africa, but it's certainly got to be somewhere in Asia. No, uh, the Republic of Malaysia is right here in North America. No, not on the far-flung reaches of Central America somewhere between a couple of banana republics. It is entirely surrounded by the United States, specifically, it is within the, the state of Nevada. Now, how did the country of Malaysia come to be? Is it actually a country? And what's the story here? Is this serious? Those are a few of the questions that we are going to ask to the founder and president of the Republic of Malaysia, Kevin Baugh, the, uh, His Excellency Grand Admiral Dr. Kevin Baugh, to be precise. Mr. President, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Oh, uh, sorry, Kevin. I didn't, uh, didn't hear you for a second. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's great to be here. All right. So uh, I guess the, the obvious place to begin is uh, you were the founder of uh, the Republic of, uh, of Malaysia. It's been a country for uh, at least a couple of decades now. Why start your own country? What was your motivation in uh, trying to start your own country? Well, actually, you know, Malaysia has been around for 45 years. Uh, it was originally founded uh, in uh, 1977, on 26 May 1977. Uh, it was called, back then it was called the Grand Republic of Wolfstein. And uh, my friend James and I, we watched this old movie by Peter Sellers, uh, Peter, starring Peter Sellers, uh, called The Mouse That Roared. And we were really struck with the imagination and creativity of that movie. And so we decided to start our own nation. Uh, he was the king and I was the prime minister. And and uh, things were great, but he moved on to other activities. I stayed with the idea of having my own nation. And uh, when I obtained property here within northern Nevada in 1998, changed the name to the Republic of Malaysia. And uh, we've been going strong in this location ever since. So the, the country was not always geographically where it is now within Nevada. That's correct. Yes. So it's kind of nomadic, if you will, uh, probably for the first couple of decades or so. Uh, and also at the same time, sort of uh, gathering ideas uh, as I traveled around the world um, about what makes a country. And uh, so we were to, I was able to incorporate that as I, as I built Malasia, especially once we uh, you know, gained territory here, make it sort of a real place, for lack of a better phrase. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of what we're doing. Uh, just sort of an exploration of the idea of what makes a country and then uh, seeing where we can take that idea. I've seen the film The Mouse That Roared, and I love Peter Sellers, and it's a clever film, but many of our listeners uh, probably haven't. Explain how that film sort of motivated your interest in exploring the idea of what they call micronationalism and starting your own country, even though it happens to be within the borders of the United States. Absolutely. Well, The Mouse That Roared, 
I just, to keep it short, uh, is about a tiny country in Europe that goes to war with the United States, expecting to lose the war, but actually ends up winning the war because they capture the world's most powerful uh, atomic bomb. And uh, along in there, just because it's, it's just sort of a, just a clever idea, and uh, we sort of wanted to build on that idea. We drew some inspiration from that and from, as I said, uh, established countries, especially the smaller countries of Europe, places like Liechtenstein and, and uh, Monaco and so forth. So how do small countries work and, and uh, sort of went with that. And every day we're trying to come up with new ideas, new things that we can do uh, with our little nation. And, uh, and I think we've been pretty successful so far. We have a lot of fun with it. Now, uh, you did, did mention in your intro there, um, we, are, we are serious about this, um, but not like crazy serious, uh, I guess, <laughs> to, to phrase it that way. Uh, this is not like a secessionist thing, uh, but we are serious at the, about the idea. What we've, what we've created here and put a lot of effort into uh, is essentially a tiny country. Uh, we do not have the resources uh, to be self-sufficient, but we uh, – we are. Uh, we have everything else that a nation has: our own flag and laws and government and and uh, our own money and stamps. Just about everything a country has, uh, we've got here in Malaysia. When I was in, uh, I guess maybe the fifth or sixth grade, I just declared myself to be the emperor of Antarctica. I had no uh, recognition from any world leaders. I'd never actually been to Antarctica, but I thought it would be kind of a, a fun thing to do and uh, sort of an interesting thing to have fun with. But you, when you say you're you're serious but not super serious, how much of this is just uh, is just you and the first lady who also happens to be the vice president? How how much of this is just you guys having fun, and how much of this is a serious effort at at sovereignty? Uh, I would say it's about um, maybe sixty forty. Uh, I mean, we like to have fun with it. We're, we're realistic. Uh, our nation, really, the occupied portion of our nation is only one point three acres. So we know we don't have the, uh, as I said, the resources to stand our own two feet, uh, if you will. Those are very very small. Uh, so it it helps to have some some a sense of humor and uh, and 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 just use our creativity and see what we can do with the idea. Uh, but we do consider ourselves to be a sovereign nation. Um, I mean, it's not something we're gonna you know blow up the local government offices or something like that. Nothing crazy like that. Um, but I mean, well, we we think we have our own country, and and uh, then we have a good time with that idea taken from that. Is it legal to just start your own country, as far as you're concerned? Well, as far as we're concerned, no. I mean, I mean, yes, it is. It is legal, but I, honestly, there's really nothing in like the U.S. code or anything that says you can't start your own country. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, it, because it's a, such, such an outlandish idea that no one really ever thought to, you know, declare that illegal. Well, I think there actually was a, a post-Civil War law down in Texas, so that just may, means that Texas can't do it. Doesn't mean anybody else can't. But uh, that's, that's, about, that's about it. In spite of, by the way, in spite of what Texans think they, they can do. Now, uh, I, I can't imagine that uh, that being the the president of a country as small, albeit as as rugged as Malasia is, can pay you a full time wage that you're able to uh, pay your your bills with. You work you work for a living in addition to your role as the president of Malasia. Yeah, actually, the first lady and I, and actually all adult Malaysians, uh, work out, outside the country, over the border uh, in the U.S. And uh, and that 
basically supports the nation. But um, our, we have a, we have what we call a tourist economy. So tourists come and visit Malasia, and uh, uh, and they spend money on some of our souvenirs and so forth like that. And, and uh, so it's kind of a that portion of Malasia is self-supporting. Um, we, the I guess things we sell online, for lack of a better phrase, uh, go into our various activities that that you know are part of the country. Uh, by the way, of course, it, all the boring, all, all the all the boring stuff is paid for by uh, you know food and stuff like that. <laughs> is paid is paid for by our, our our salaries from working outside the country. <laughs> if, if people want to buy any uh, Malasian merchandise or buy some uh, war bonds or railroad stock, they can go to your website Malasia dot org. That's M O L O. S-S-I-A dot org. Now, um, I know you've served in the United States uh, military before. Is the the idea of breaking away from the United States uh, uh, government, albeit in a nonviolent way, uh, in a sort of an amicable, peaceful way, is that treasonous at all? Do you view that as a betrayal of the country that you were born in and that you still make your living in, the United States? Honestly, we don't give much thought to that. Uh, we we really don't. I mean, I guess on some level, somebody some folks might think that that it is, but uh, we just think we have our own country, and we don't really give a whole lot of that, a whole lot of thought to the, you know, what are we doing? We're we breaking away, or we are we betraying the United States, or, or anything like that. We're, we're still within the U.S. and all Malassians are, are dual Malassian U.S. citizens, so we're still citizens of the U.S. Uh, and and for the record, because this question is asked an awful lot, we uh, we do pay taxes to the U.S., but we call them foreign aid. So we give <laughs> the U.S. foreign aid every year. I mean, you've seen their roads. They can use all the help they can get. And th- so, th- that I mean, is we're, uh, we're there. For, we are there for them to support. Uh, that so. is that, that is certainly for sure. What is the currency <laughs> in Malasia? Our currency is called the Valora, uh, and that means valuable in our second language, Esperanto. And our uh, currency is not based on something, you know, worthless like gold or silver or platinum. No, it's based on something very valuable, chocolate chip cookie dough. So we're on the chocolate chip cookie dough standard here in the Republic of Malasia. Interesting. Wow. I mean, uh, that is, uh, I mean, the problem with cookie dough, though, under, uh, you know, other than gold or silver, is wouldn't it spoil after a time? And then you freeze it. Oh, uh, you freeze we it. You freeze it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And we usually have a very, very large cookie, cookie dough repository. Uh, but I think we sort of worn that down over, over through the holidays, so uh, we're, we're in need of fresh. When, when folks come visit Malasia, quite often uh, they will come bearing gifts of cookie dough. It's, how it's how very often? Common. How often do tourists come visit Malasia? And if someone wants to schedule a visit, uh, how can they do so? Uh, we have tours once a month, April through October. Uh, in other words, the better the warmer months of the year. And uh, and so the, and the schedule, uh, the calendar, if you will, is on the web page, the main web page. You can see uh, when it first comes up down to the right. That's uh, that's all the different tour days. And then just a matter of dropping us an email, letting us know that you're coming. I mean, that's not required, not mandatory, but it certainly is helpful. So we know how many folks to uh, expect. On well, our tours average about forty people, uh, give or take. I mean, it's a small country. You don't get too many folks here. We'll get crowded. <laughs> no. Uh, no, I can uh, I can certainly imagine. Is the and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with his his Excellency Grand Admiral Doctor Kevin Baugh. He is the founder and president of the Republic of Malasia. Is Malasia recognized by any other countries? 
No, not by any established country. Now, um, going going back just a little bit, Malaysia is what's called a micronation, which is a tiny self-declared country uh, unrecognized by, by other nations. Um, I mean, other micronations recognize Malaysia, and uh, we would do the same, except we have sort of an informal diplomatic policy. But established nations don't recognize micronations. Uh, I mean, if, like, for example, I don't know, the nation of the Bahamas was to recognize uh, you know, Malaysia as you know carved out of the United States, that would cause a big international incident, and people would get mad, and there'd be shouting and so forth, and and uh, so they don't want that. Uh, you know, so that would damage their economy. <laughs> so, unfortunately, we are not recognized, but we always hold out hope, well, and, I, I, and I occasionally imagine. we will reach out to other governments and you know send letters, which are almost always ignored. Well, what about countries <laughs> that say don't have diplomatic relations with the United States or that aren't recognized by the uh, United States? Maybe uh, something like the Republic of China, uh, aka Taiwan, for instance, or uh, even the countries that are that, that claim to be independent that are in the Donbas region in Ukraine. Uh, countries like uh, like Donetsk, for instance. Have you thought about? Um, re- pursuing diplomatic relations with any of those countries? Uh, yes, we actually uh, reached out to, there's one that's called, Ar- what's it called, Arkotsk, Ar- I think, and it's a breakaway of, of uh, Kazakhstan, I think, and um, they, they consider themselves to be sovereign, although they are not recognized by pretty much anybody uh, else, and we reached out to them, we really didn't get a response. Um, and so, I mean, but we, we continue to try, we really reach out to smaller nations, uh, you know, in the hope that that uh, maybe between a combination of us also being small and maybe you know their bureaucracy isn't quite as developed, and then we can slip on through and <laughs> get some kind of, get some kind of recognition by by default or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but yes, if there's an opportunity and and I find it, hey, and I haven't heard about this uh, this this breakaway nation or something like that, we'll definitely reach out and see see if we can get. And so far, even they have not responded. Which is unfortunate. It's kind of sad. Has there been a trend <laughs> towards micronationalism in recent years? And if there has been, what do you attribute that to? Um, actually, it really kicked off uh, in, in a kind of a bigger way, micronations did, uh, in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, when the Internet really took off. Um, and Because that's when we sort of all discovered each other, if you will, and uh, you know that there are, there are many micronations out there. And, uh, and and that's when things really started to develop. Uh, and it's sort of been going steady ever since. I mean, micronations come and go very rapidly. Um, your average micronationalist is, is usually a teenager, teenage boy. And uh, when they get out of high school or whatever, they move on to other things, and their micronation sort of fades away, uh, if you will. But some folks, they stick with it, like we did here in Malasia. And uh, and those those folks are actually uh, the other micronations are actually really good friends of Malasia. We're sort of a, sort of a small community. Well, of more established micronations. I guess I, I still keep coming back to the first question that I asked, which is, why do this? What do you gain? What does anybody gain by forming a micronation and um, and and continuing to pursue this? I mean, clearly you put a lot of effort and seemingly a lot of time into running a country, even even a small one like the Republic of Malaysia happens to be. Why do this? Um, again, it's just an exploration of creativity and imagination. I want to see what I can do, and at this point, what I can do next, uh, with the idea of having my own nation. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really just as simple as that. I mean, uh, other folks might do it. Um, uh, say, for example, uh, uh, the Conquer Republic, which is also known as Key West, Florida, 
uh, is a micronation, but it's a different kind. Theirs is a marketing thing. You go down there, you buy a Conquer Public T-shirt or a flag or, or their passport or something along that line. And, uh, and so theirs is their, their micronation exists to sell stuff. I mean, we do sell stuff, but that's not why Malafia uh, exists. No, ours is just to see what we can do with that idea of having our own country and, and where, we can, where we can take it next. Is the and, uh, is the Republic of Mo- are complex things? So. Well, I'm sorry. Oh, what, did you, what is a complex thing? Uh, countries are complex things, and and they're uh, and and it's it's fun to explore those complexities, and and especially on our very small level with a very small population and a very small budget, it takes some imagination to see what we can do with Malaysia. Is um is the Republic of Malaysia a democracy? Um. Well, I guess in effect it is, but officially we are a dictatorship, and I and I am the dictator. And you gave me my, my fantastic long grand title there. And uh, however, but in in reality, we're we're a little more democratic, at least in the uh, I guess the pure democracy approach. Because if we have something that we're uh, that we're that we're going to be doing here in Malaysia, sort of by consensus, as opposed to be saying we will do it, that kind of thing. But we don't have elections though. Uh, primarily because nobody really wants the job of president. It's, it's kind of me. <laughs> I, I, I can imagine. Now you um, a lot of work running your own country. <laughs> you, you have uh, tr- done some um, version of the Olympics for micronations, haven't you? Yeah, it's been a long time now. I was way back in uh, in 2000 at the same time as the Sydney Games, and uh, we did. Uh, so that's been quite a long time. Uh, but uh, we did do that, and that was reasonable. That was pretty successful. Uh, it was kind of a, uh, you know, interesting trying to coordinate because micronations, of course, are scattered all over the world, different time zones, and they can't meet in one spot uh, like the actual Olympics do, um, because they don't have that kind of, you know, those kind of resources to fly across the world. But we do have something similar, although it's not really Olympics. But every couple of years, there is a thing called microcon where micronationalists gather. Uh, together in sort of a micronational convention. It's not like an organization. It's sort of a meetup, if you will. And uh, we have that every couple of years. We're going to have one this summer, uh, in this August, in Las Vegas. Oh, and uh, we all, different micronations get together and, you know, exchange ideas and, and just sort of meet up and see what everybody's, uh, what everybody's doing with their country. How many countries participate in, in something like MicroCon? Oh, my goodness. I think this last one, we probably had... 40, I think, probably maybe more. I don't remember because the last one was actually in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and uh, that was in 2019, I think. And uh, I want to say we probably had about 40 micronations because there were well over 100 people there um, because each micronation will usually you know, have more than one, one representative uh, or if they're younger micronationalists, that's one representative plus mom and dad. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to people listening to us right now and are thinking of starting their own micronation after hearing you and maybe being inspired by you? Any advice on getting started as a micronationalist? And do you think everybody should maybe start their own micronation? Oh, yes, I do actually think everybody should start their own micronation, 100%. Uh, I mean, if you, it's a different kind of exercise of, of creativity. Uh, on one level, and I hate this term, but on one level, you could almost call it a hobby, uh, if you will. But, um, but I, I, the advice I would give is, is you know, learn a little bit about how countries work and, um, and then use your imagination and see what you can do with that, with that baseline. Um, I mean, 
there are some standard things that all countries have, and you know, need your own flag, obviously, and a name and a government and so forth. But uh, but there are def- definitely variations on what you can do with that idea. So, uh, yeah, learn a little bit about how countries work, and then just put that into uh, into practice and see where you can go with your country. You know, it's uh, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Kevin Baugh. He is the founder and president of the Republic of Malasia. You can uh, check out their website and check out their online store by going to malasia.org. That's uh, M-O-L-O-S-S-I-A.org. When I when I called you to set up this interview, I spoke briefly to your wife, and she introduced herself as the first lady of the uh, of the Republic of Malaysia. I, uh, you know, my wife doesn't go along with any of my uh, my. Uh, I'll, I'll call. I'll use the term loosely. In schemes. How do you get your wife to buy into this kind of a thing? Well, she bought into it from the very very beginning. She knew what she was getting into uh, when uh, when we got together. Uh, I think 12 years ago, and uh, 13 years ago, almost 13 years ago, and uh, and so she she knew she was going to get involved with this guy who has his own country, and she was quite okay with that. Where she puts it is, you know, she asked if she could wear a tiara, and I said, well, it's not really a first lady thing, but sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> why does Malasia have three official languages? Uh, well, um, obviously, English is our main language. Uh, Esperanto is our second language. It's a constructed language, sort of uh, designed to be a bridge between uh, peoples. If you don't speak the same languages, instead of you having to learn English and me having to learn French, then we can sort of meet in the middle of Esperanto. Uh, it's a very simple language to learn, very easy. And then uh, we are in the uh, in the Southwest, and Spanish is very common here. And so that is uh, that's our third language, uh, which I'm slowly but surely learning. And, uh, and so, so we, that's why we have the three languages. They're all basically part of our culture. I played the national anthem to begin this segment. It, the, the tune of it, if not the lyrics, sounds identical to the Albanian national anthem. Did you steal the Albanian national anthem? Well, about that. I was going to tell you a little bit later on in the interview, but you got the wrong national anthem. Oh, so that's not the national anthem of Malaysia? No, that's now that's our old national anthem, and that's got to be about five, six years ago that we uh, we abandoned that one and we picked up a new national anthem. Uh, so if you go to our main main webpage, you can hear that. Um, also, YouTube, we've got a awesome YouTube thing with uh, with the lyrics and the flag flying in the background and everything. Uh, that was also stolen, but it was stolen from the nation of Zaire, which as now uh, Republic of the Congo and is no longer Zaire. So they're no longer using the Zairean national anthem. So uh, the the Albanians actually complained about us borrowing their national anthem. And I took that to heart. I didn't want to take someone else's uh, thing. So uh, since Zaire no longer exists, they don't need their anthem. So we borrowed that one. Um, I suppose that makes sense. You know, it is interesting on uh, January 8th in Malasia, you celebrate a holiday in honor of Emperor Norton. Emperor Norton yes. was a fellow that uh, that lived in San Francisco that claimed to be the emperor of the United States. He was immortalized in uh, some Mark Twain literature. Why do, mm-hmm. why do you, uh, the nation of Malaysia celebrate uh, someone who claimed to be the emperor of the United States? We really consider Emperor Norton to be uh, the first micronationalist, uh, if you will. He's really the first guy to claim he was the ruler of a country that everybody else thinks that doesn't really, you're not really the ruler of the country, that kind of thing. And so uh, 
And of course, being being an eccentric, and of course, most micronationalists are at least a little eccentric. Uh, we, like I said, consider him to be the first micronationalist. And so here in Malaysia, Emperor Norton actually uh, he uh, he looms fairly large. He's on our money. He's on our stamps. We have a park named after him. We have a cannon named after him. We have part of our measurement system named after him. Uh, so yes, we have our own measurement system here in Malaysia. And uh, and so yeah, the Emperor Norton's a, he's a big deal here. Uh, I'm sure he appreciates that. And uh, as a longtime student of Emperor Norton, uh, I certainly find it interesting as well. Uh, Mr. President, I think we're going to have to end it there. I uh, very much appreciate the time. And the next time you're on the show, I promise we will have uh, the proper national anthem to introduce you. (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of uh, my conversation with Kevin Baugh, the founder and president of Malasia, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. 77 WABC. All American. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. If you want to see what bumper music we play on this show on a daily basis, all you have to do is join our Facebook group. Just go on to the Facebook, search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters, and uh, we post the music there every day. So if you say, oh, I like that song, how can I hear more of it? Or I don't like that song, how can I avoid it? That's the best spot to do it. Uh, you can email me. We will read your best and worst email tomorrow on this program at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. On Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. And uh, you can find me on Facebook where I post a lot of articles at uh, facebook.com slash moranofan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. So it's funny. um, One of the things that I am perpetually guilty of, and I think I inherit this from my mom, is I tend to, if I'm throwing a party or something, I tend to over-order, right? I mean, um, I get, whether we're talking, I mean, the worst was on New Year's Eve Eve this year because I was left to my own devices uh, without my wife because she was sick and taking care of our child. So I was up for me to me to cater New Year's Eve. I went crazy. I went crazy. I I think there were sixty people there. Uh, no exaggeration. I think I had food for one hundred and fifty people. I mean, I, I tend to go a little a little nuts. So last Sunday we had people over for the Super Bowl, and a lot of people were coming out to my hometown for from you know Manhattan, Westchester, wherever. So I, I said, let me give them a local treat that I think they're going to enjoy. And uh, look, I knew we were going to have to order pizza to supplement the sandwiches that were there. And we did, right? So we ordered my, here's what I did. I always order 
through the Slice app, which is a great app. I, I don't want to give them a free commercial because they really should be advertising. So, so I order through the Slice app on Super Bowl Sunday, and I schedule, at least I think I do, one order to come at 6.30 p.m. and one order to come around 8 p.m. Figured, you know, people will make their way through the sandwiches, the pizza, the other refreshments, the chips, the dip, so forth, and that'll be good. And then I notice, after the game, as I'm coming in here, I notice nobody brought the second pizza. And this was a tri-pie. For the description of what a tri-pie is, go back and listen to the podcast of Friday's show. So I noticed that, and I'm about to reach out to the folks through the Slice app to say, hey, you charged me for this. Well, give me my money back. And sure enough, I go on to the Slice app, and I see that I had scheduled the delivery for the future, but not for 8 p.m. on February 13th. Instead, I had inadvertently scheduled for 8 p.m. on February 20th. Now, if you know me, I do stuff like this all the time. I'm ordering, if I ever have to order online or something, I'm ordering from the wrong the wrong size. Or I'm, I'm doing stuff like this all the time. So um, I, my wife's cousin, Kim, who's a very talented broadcaster in her own right. She was on TV. She's a, I think, was a beauty queen. She's done all sorts of stuff. Kim Kravitz. Sid Rosenberg talks about her all the time. And if you've ever seen Kimberly, you understand why Sid talks about her all the time. So Kim and her boyfriend Kyle were over on Friday and we're talking about making mistakes and I mentioned that I did this. I say, you know, I have a pizza scheduled to come Sunday that was originally supposed to come last Sunday. And my wife says, what? You've got to cancel it. We've got all sorts of leftover food and we're not even going to be here Sunday. Okay. So I, I cancel this order for the pizza on Friday. The order's supposed to come Sunday. And then I pretty much forget about it. Problem solved. I move on with my life. Then, we're at my dad's last night. It's around quarter to eight. And my phone rings. I don't recognize the number. I don't answer. I try not to answer, answer numbers that I don't recognize. And I see somebody's at our door. And sure enough, we, we see at the ring, we have the ring app on our phones. And I see there's somebody delivering pizza last night at 8 p.m. We're not home. So the guy calls me again. This time I have an idea of who it is. I pick up the phone. And uh, he says, hi, this is, you know, he gives the name of the establishment. I said, I'm sorry, I canceled this order. They said, well, we didn't get any cancellation. And I said, I'm sorry, I definitely canceled it. And I said, you could leave it there if you want, but I hate to waste it. You you could just take it, give it to somebody else if you want. And the guy got all mad at me. He basically hung up, didn't even say goodbye. So then I uh, reach out again through the Slice app to one of their live people that help you. And I said, Evelyn, that's the woman in the chat box that was helping me. I said, Evelyn, I just want to confirm that I canceled this order on Friday. Sure enough, they had me waiting a little while, but they said, sorry for the wait. Yes, we did receive your cancellation, and we did refund your money on Friday. 
was a miscommunication for the restaurant. So I felt bad to waste that food. I also felt bad to have this guy make a special trip when we weren't even home in the cold. Uh, but I do appreciate the fact that the Slice app folks came through. Um, again, all of this could be avoided if you didn't have my level of stupidity where you schedule a delivery for February 20th when you intend it to be delivered on February 13th. So, again, I guess I am the domino that caused all this to come tumbling down. But that's kind of where we are. So Outrageous. use the Spice app, the Slice app carefully. But if you ever have a problem, it's good to know that they're there for you. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, the original, Tom from the Bronx. Hello. Yes, sir. Yes. Hi, Frank. Hi, I'd like Hi. to say this Molassia country, where, where is that supposed to be located? It's in Nevada. It's surrounded oh, by Nevada. Nevada. Well, uh, let me say, it sounds like a tax dodge or something well, like that. Well, and, and I would think that too, Tom. But as he said, they're still paying taxes to the United States. Only the difference is they don't call them taxes. They call it foreign aid. So, you know, it is what it is. Ed is calling from the country of Eggblatt. Hello, Ed. Good, uh, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Um, yeah, so I was really excited to hear you interviewing the a fellow ru- ruler of a micronation. So, so you, you're, micronation. you're a micronationalist yeah. as well? That's right. Where is Eggblatt? So it's actually a non uh it's a non contiguous country. We are located in two places. Um it's actually in the soles of both my slippers. So <laughs> wherever my slippers may happen to be, that's where the country is located. And we are we are also like a transient country, you know. We're currently lo- located in central Jersey and you know, we move around. Well hey, good for you. I guess there's a lot of flexibility that way. I don't see anything about Eggblatt online. Yeah, because we're actually celebrating our our eighth uh, anniversary of our eighth minute in as a as a oh you're brand new country. you're brand new. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm honored to be there at the founding of the country. Ed, best of luck. <laughs> thank you. Thank good, you. Good luck. Let us know how that turns out. Robert is in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. <laughs> good morning, Frank. I don't know if. The guy sounded actually serious, but, uh, you know, it's funny. What a difference 60 years makes. Back in 1960, there was a special on NBC. I remember it was a Sunday night, and there wasn't anything else worth watching. And it was then that they had the five smallest countries in the world back in those days, which happened to be Liechtenstein, Monaco, San Marino, which, as you probably know, is somewhere... Italy on the Italian boot, Andorra, which is a great place. You, you know, you go, you yep. go through Andorra in the Pyrenees, five minutes. It was a great place for smugglers about 500 years ago. And the little building on a side street in Rome called S-M-O-M, SMOM. It stood for the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, which they claim to be the legal descendants of the Knights of Malta. But they are recognized by 25 Catholic countries, including the Vatican. Well, thank you, Robert. Uh, micronationalists, rise up, unite. Keep us posted on your the status of your country. Uh, you know, check out the website if you want to buy some merchandise. They seem like a nice country. Next hour.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Frank Morano, uh, keeping live and local radio alive single-handedly, at least in the overnight hours. Um, I am a radio fan. Always have been. Always will be. I listen to all sorts of radio, though. I listen to AM. I listen to FM. I listen to talk. Talk's my favorite. I listen to news. I listen to sports. I listen to music. And I do listen to satellite. And I like satellite. Uh, because, again, I prefer to listen to WABC, and I'm not just saying this because I work here. If you came over my house on Saturday night, you would hear Vinny Madugno and Cousin Brucie and then Tony Orlando. If you uh, start your Sunday swing by my house, you will hear uh, the Cats Roundtable, Rudy Giuliani, and so forth. So I like Sirius because... If you don't want to hear a lot of commercials and you want to hear music or you want to hear a certain type of programming, you can hear it. What I don't like about Sirius XM, that's the satellite radio, is that everything is so niche, right? Like if we were to put this show on Sirius XM, what channel would it go on? It wouldn't fit on any channel. You know, would it go on the POTUS channel? No, because uh, we just do a lot of things other than politics. Would it go on the one of the right-wing channels? No, because, you know, clearly there are times when I stake out a very left-wing position. Um, would it go on one of the entertainment channels like Stars? No, because what other entertainment channel spends this amount of time discussing the possible invasion of Ukraine? I mean, we, we, so that's what I think SiriusXM is missing, is everything is so narrow-casted that there's not, with the exception of Howard Stern... There's not really a lot of broadcasting. So, anyway, my wife, um, she and I were driving to New New Jersey on Saturday. And it was before the uh, Curtis and Anthony Weiner show started. And I, I did want to hear that out, out of curiosity, if nothing else. But we're in the car. And she's flipping around to her presets. And she has on her preset the 70s channel on uh, on Sirius XM. Have you ever listened to the 70s channel on Sirius XM? So if you tune in to the 70s channel, I think this is the case all day. And at least whenever I've listened, this is the case. And I like the 70s channel. They play a lot of good music on there. But whenever you tune into the 70s channel, you know what you hear? You hear the music, you hear some cool jingles, and you hear a DJ. The DJ's recorded. The DJ's not live. He's recorded. 
But the interesting thing is, and the DJ has a lot of interesting tidbits about the music, a lot of uh, personal stories about a, a tremendous depth of knowledge about the music and stories that uh, seemingly have nothing to do with the music. And he's somehow able to make it match the music. But the interesting thing is, the DJ that you hear on the 70s channel is dead. Now, if you turn to the Sirius XM 70s channel, at least whenever I've turned on it, it, turned it on. And again, don't turn it on now. Keep listening to me. I hear this voice. Flipping to number two. After one week in the top spot is another new group. This one from Scotland. Simple Minds with Don't You Forget About Me. And pole vaulting in from number four to number one is Wham! With their third consecutive number one smash. Wham! hits the top with everything she wants. Now, Casey Kasem, a legendary uh, DJ and somebody that I've always been a fan of in everything that he's done, not just musically, but, um, you know, as the first actor to play Shaggy on Scooby-Doo. The guy's a legend. But he's been dead for eight years. And again, you know, even I and I used to really enjoy doing a um, a Casey Kasem impression, you know, um, uh, because whether you're talking about a, a dog or a little boy, there's something just so magical about 1970s music. And whether it's the Beach Boys, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, there's nobody that can speak to the heart of a little boy or a little puppy more than the 1970s. But I stopped doing it because uh, I felt, okay, the guy's dead. I mean, maybe I shouldn't be impersonating a dead person anymore. I mean, <laughs> so my wife said to me, she asked a good question uh, she, because the whole channel is him introducing music as if he's still alive. And she said to me, don't you find this weird? Are they going to keep doing this forever? He's been dead now eight years. Is there any other DJ in the country that you know of where they do this? Where after a person dies, they just keep playing him as if he's alive. I remember, you know, I used to, you know what a fan of Larry King I am and was. Larry King, before he died, was on every infomercial in the world, right? If you had, uh, if there was a supplement that could do something for your prostate, Larry was telling you about it. If there was a psychic that could tell you how to pick winning lottery numbers, Larry was telling you about it. If there was a way to buy jigsaw puzzles at wholesale, Larry was telling you about it. And I'm sure Larry made a mint with these infomercials. And the way they did it was very clever. And a lot of radio people do this too. And I've done it. But Larry formatted the infomercial like a, a, a talk show. So they would build the show as, you know, Larry King tells you about colon blow. Right. That, that would, would be what it would say. And it would almost be like the Larry King show. But instead of interviewing a newsmaker or a celebrity or something or an author, it would be him interviewing the person, the product. And I watched because it was these, these were on all the time. I said, are they going to keep these on after he dies? 
I saw within almost the day after he died, he w- those were done. You didn't see those on anymore. And that was not the case with Casey Kasem. I'm sure, and I know Casey Kasem's death was a little weird in terms of how his wife and his children interacted with one another, and there were a lot of fights about all sorts of things. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm sure somebody in the family, whether it was his wife or his children, gave Sirius the permission to still use his voice, but I found it weird. So Rachel asked me, do they do that with anyone else? And I started thinking, I said, I think, you know, I don't listen to uh, music. I certainly don't listen to FM music in the middle of the day much anymore uh, because of my odd hours. I said, I think they do that with Scott Muni. Do you remember Scott Muni? Scott Muni, Scott So, he was a terrific DJ. He was on this station, WMCA, he was on uh, WMCA, and then towards the end of his life, he was on Q104.3. He would host, uh, I think, what was called the Beatles block. And for a while, they and I, I don't know if they still do this, but for a while, they would keep playing his voice as the beginning of that show, of that Beatles block show. This was Scott Muni. That's Cat Stevens, and... Uh... We're at our uh, transmitter site, Scott Muni, here at WNEWFM in New York. And uh, if you are just with us, you already know what's been going on for these low, these many hours. Uh, you know about the problems of the city. and uh, We're back on the air, which is kind of nice, although many parts of the city do not have power at the moment. Now, you could hear what a distinctive voice he had, and those of you that used to listen to him... Whether it was here, whether it was Q104.3, or whether it was WMCA, you recognize with that voice right away. In fact, he I don't think this was true, but he always claimed that he got that voice because the owner of, I think it was the owner of WMCA, uh, she had a pet goat. And he claimed, and I'm almost certain that this was a lie, but he claimed that the goat had kicked him in the throat and that that goat had given him his distinctive voice and his career. And he, again, he had a lengthy career for um f- he was on f- for 50 years in New York City. I mean, that's extraordinary. So, I think they might do it with um W with uh with Q104.3 and and Scott Muni. And then I know they don't do this in New York, but there are some markets, there are some stations around the country that still play leftover episode or uh, older episodes of Art Bell, either hosting Coast to Coast or um, Midnight in the Desert. You remember Art Bell used to do this time slot. We're going to do some things you're probably not ready for tonight. There will be some stories from all of you, some that have been phoned in, some that will no doubt leak in through, uh, uh, through Skype and other means. And, of course, our national number, we'll get to all that. I've got a couple of stories I want to read you first. So, whether it's Casey Kasem, Casey Kasem is the most prevalent example. But whether it's Casey Kasem, Scott Muni, Art Bell, or someone else, or Larry King, for instance, although I don't think they do that with Larry, do you think it's weird that they keep playing the work of these fine broadcasters years after they're dead as if they're still alive. 
I'm tr- 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I was trying to think of how I'd feel about it. Um, whether Would I be flattered if they wanted to keep playing episodes of this show after I died? Or would I sort of want my voice to die with me? And I, I go back and forth. I think... I think I would want them to keep playing me. So this way that future generations could sort of know my work. Because, look, if you think about it, if you are a 15-year-old, you don't have much memory of Casey Kasem when he was alive. But you get exposed to his work all the time now if you listen to that channel. And that's, I guess, a good thing. But on the other hand, you sort of lose control of... You know, I don't know, your brand, if they keep just mechanically reproducing you after you die. You know, it's funny. I've been just intrigued by the idea of artificial intelligence, the metaverse, computer simulations. Are we living in a computer simulation? And Shatner has said, and I believe, I don't have this article in front of me, but Shatner has said, that he wants to be uploaded to being artificial intelligence. He essentially wants to be a hologram after he dies. And he's 90 years old now, so who knows? This could happen soon. He wants to be a hologram and ha- that have his voice and his consciousness uploaded to this hologram so that he would essentially live forever. And on the one hand, I think that's kind of cool in that, hey, you know, you didn't get to interview William Shatner when he was alive. But, hey, maybe you get to interview or meet his hologram. And if you look at a lot of performers now, this is becoming more and more common. Uh, Kanye West, when he was still married to Kim Kardashian, he bought her a birthday hologram greeting from her father. Not a recording, but basically this hologram with her father, who's dead, his voice... Um, interacting with her now, saying how proud he is of her and things like that. And I don't know. I think it's a little weird. And I don't know how I feel about it. My question for you is, as a listener, how do you feel about it? Whether we're talking radio stars like Casey Kasem, television stars like Larry King, um, overall personalities like William Shatner, Lawyers like Robert Kardashian, musicians like Tupac. I expected Tupac, the hologram, to perform at the Super Bowl. I was waiting. And, I, you know, I, I feel like Tupac, the hologram, has been performing more than Tupac, the entertainer, did when he was alive. How do you feel about watching all these dead people perform now as if they're alive? Now, the difference between Casey Kasem and Tupac is significant in that with Casey Kasem, they're taking recording, or Art Bell, or Scott Muni, they're taking recordings of things they've already done. With Tupac, or what Shatner's going to do, or Robert Kardashian, those are essentially artificial intelligence. So, curious what you think about this. Because in, in hearing your view, it'll help me kind of make up my own mind as we put together our living will and everything about whether or not I want to be I, I want to be maintained after I die in such a manner 
800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222-1234-56 open lines. Lou is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Lou. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Hey, listen, you know, I think that uh, this is going to become actually more and more uh, prevalent uh, in the future because, you know, they've been talking for a while. Well, I remember years ago, um, I went to see a, a, a virtual Elvis show. It wasn't an Elvis impersonator. It was uh, his, uh, his, his the, the, the band, the, uh, the girls that used to sing behind him, all live on stage and on screen. It was just coordinated incredibly with, uh, you know, films of uh, uh, or video of Elvis uh, singing. But as the technology advances, you know, I've been hearing talk for a long time that they're going to be able to uh, make movies with, uh, you know, uh, whoever, uh, Marlon Brando, Jimmy Cagney, uh, you know, virtual versions of them, that, that at least the technology may be, you know, exists. There's been talk about that for a long time. Well, the technology uh, does exist, right? So let's say um, just because the technology exists and we have this debate all the time over the ethics of cloning or gene splicing. And obviously, look, this is, you know, watching a movie or going to a concert is much less significant in the grand scheme of things than um, than cloning or gene splicing. But just because we have the technology, does that mean we should do this? What do you think, Lou? Well, you know, I mean, um, I, I, I don't think so. I don't. There's just something that just doesn't rub me right about doing it. Uh, it's the same way I really didn't like uh, years ago when they, the Turner brought in colorization of black and white movies, you know. Uh, it, it rubs me the wrong way this, the same way. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Oh, I do. Um, I do. I do. I, and um, um, I, I think it's a little different, but it, but not uh, not an entirely different point. It's a good point. Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk about this 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 pal of Jeffrey Epstein who hanged himself in his prison cell. Did you see this? We'll get to this later because I, I don't know how I avoid commenting on that today because I, how many – if Jelaine Maxwell kills herself now, can we acknowledge that that didn't happen? So, well, if we don't get to this today, we'll have a discussion about this tomorrow. Uh, let me say hello to Mark in Rochelle Park. Hello, Mark. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Good morning. Morning. Casey, by the way, it was a pretty good impersonation of Casey, by the way. Thank you. You know, it's funny that you say that because my um, very first appearance when I returned to WABC in July of 2020 is I went – it was July 4th, actually. It was my first day back on the air, and I was on with Curtis. I, I left a 4th of July party and I did weird Casey Kasem dedications. Like, I, I did, like, political dedications as Casey Kasem. And I got pretty good reviews for that, so thank you. That's, that's, that's funny. The thing with Casey, I, I like the Casey thing. I listen to 70s on the 7 uh, all the time. I, I'm a, a livery driver. So I have you on, or I'll switch over to 70s on 7. Uh, but that, that that's a show. I like the Casey thing. What kind of creeps me out is when you mentioned the Kardashian thing, that's a little that, – that, that, that's not right. I don't know. I, you know, my dad passed away. I don't want to see him coming back as a, as a 3D thing and uh, telling me he's proud of me or not proud of me or yelling at me or whatever. So that's a, that's a little different. 
It is a little different, right? I, I, and as I said, you know, one is a recording of stuff that already happened, and one is essentially artificial intelligence, w- which is uh, anticipating what someone that did live and no longer lives, how they'd be reacting in certain right, situations. Yeah. Uh, but some people like Shatner, you know, they're running towards this. this. Uh, so, but and as far as Casey Kasem goes, do you think there's any limit to how long they should be able to keep playing him on the air? Ten years, twenty years, thirty years? No, because I think he's part of he's part of those songs. Interesting. I mean, I, said, I remember as a young boy listening, like listening to that radio station. You know, the top forty on a Saturday morning. He's part of that show, and what they'll show on that on the seventies uh, station, they'll say that week. Oh, I remember it was April fourteenth, nineteen seventy-four. Oh, that's right. I remember. I never heard of that song that was number eight and stuff like that. So he's part of the show. The same way, you know, if I uh, we're not going to put the Twilight Zone on because Rod Serling's dead. Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, a rerun's a rerun, I guess. I mean, um, yeah. and it's funny, in the remake, I don't want to give too much away, but in the newest version of the Twilight Zone series, they had an episode with Rod Serling, but it was like a new Rod Serling, and I did find it a little weird. Uh, I, yeah. You know, because it wasn't a recording, it was a digital recreation of Rod Serling. Thank you, Mark. Um that is, I guess, the difference. You know, when they did the Star Wars with the actor that played uh, Grand, Grand, Mar, Ma, Grand Moff Tarkin, they did the, the prequel to Star Wars, Rogue One. And it was good, but they recreated digitally a dead actor and had him do all sorts of lines that he had never done. So I, I thought that was a little weird. Again, I, 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 I think the distinction that he makes, that, that Mark makes there, is is right um, that on the one hand, playing a recording of someone is different than creating something new out of the image of somebody that's dead. But and what and what Mark said there about Casey Kasem, I think, is causing me to evaluate my perspective because I remember when Joe Franklin was on the radio. I used to listen to Joe Franklin's. Saturday night radio show. And the first hour of that show was on midnight to 5 a.m. Saturdays. The first hour of that show was Lux Radio Theater. And it was fun. It was really fun. I mean, you play these movies on the radio. But um, in between the movie on the radio, he'd play these old commercials from, in some cases, old actors that were around in the 40s and the 50s and so forth. And that did... I don't know. It did add to the ambiance of the of the aura. Maybe that's the same with Cousin Brucey. So, oh, you know, if Cousin Brucey passes along ever, you know, and hopefully he doesn't forever because I, I listen to him all the time. If Cousin Brucey dies, would he still want his image? And when I say image, I don't mean in the physical image sense. It could be his voice image. Would he still want that being associated with music of the 60s, for instance? I can't answer that, but I don't know. It does sort of fit a motif, you know. That was an enlightening phone call, I must say. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Pardon me while I bang my head against my desk. Uh, I'm looking at the cable news um, Stations, And again, I don't mean to go back to where we were 
three hours ago. But the the news crawl on all the cable news station, it all says some version of the same thing. It says, well, Russia's decided to go forward with invasion. I mean, again, it's anticlimactic at this point. How about when, if and when Russia invades Ukraine, how about we tell you about it? Rather than keep reporting on someone's frame of mind, which there's no way to confirm or deny, how about we just, we just not? It's very frustrating, I must say. Joe is in Riverhead. Hello, Joe. Hey, good morning, Frank. Once again, I want to thank you for another great show this well, morning. Thank you. My weekdays, uh, excellent topics get me get me going. You know, get my my brain going. I'm not a coffee drinker, but this <laughs> really helps. Um, as far as um, you're feeling about it, I think it's great for the future generations to understand to have to have that. But I think it should be uh, governed or monitored by like an estate type of situation where it's always checked for uh, being tributary and, like, respectful. It should not be used for, for, for anything, like, underboard or, or, or like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, there has to be, like, besides the FCC doing it, somebody in their corner, like in the artist's corner, like, for example, you or, or, or um, uh, Casey, you know, their family maybe, or somebody that's a family appointed to monitor the way this is done, and maybe also, you know, loyalties and et cetera. It's like it's like a continuing a business as if the guy was still working. And his estate should be able to benefit from that and also be, be you know, it should be checked and balanced so that it's not done recklessly or disrespectfully ever. Well, so who do you think should be, and, and I like your frame of, of thinking on this, who do you think should be the ultimate arbiter? Should it be the next of kin of the artist or should it be someone a little more independent? Uh, the next of kin should definitely be involved, but they, they couldn't be expected to be well-versed in the nature of that type of um, organization and protection. But it could be somebody like this might open up a whole new, new, new business kind of thing, like show business, but not as we know it, as we knew it. Like a whole nother uh, uh, genre of, of, of management for the artist, you know, just to make sure and if, whether it goes to charity or, you know, with also, you know, of course, with management expenses, but whether it goes to charity or to the family or to whatever they might have designated, as it becomes more popular, artists might be able to make this, this thing happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, after I go, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do, Joe. And it is interesting that you mention uh, that, like where the money goes, because I didn't even think of the financial aspect of it. Now, it's bad enough in radio. Radio is a very competitive medium. Right. You have to compete with all sorts of talk show hosts, DJs, news anchors, producers, so forth that are living. Now, are we now going to live in an era where you now have to not only compete with living broadcasters, but you now have to compete with dead broadcasters? Now, again, Joe Piscopo is a good friend of mine. I hope he lives for another 40 years and at the shape that he's in, he probably will. But let's say Joe Piscopo gets hit by a bus tomorrow and dies. Should this station still be using him to introduce Sinatra records on Sunday? Or 
should we give that opportunity to a living person? Because if you think about it, in the Casey Kasem situation or the Art Bell situation, those are jobs that could and would go to living broadcasters. And they're being taken by dead broadcasters. So is somebody getting paid for that? If it's not the case in family, is, is somebody getting paid? I don't know. We'll, we'll take a couple more calls on this, and then we get the $1,000 minute. Maurice is in Rileyville, New Jersey. Hello, Maurice. Yeah, hi, Frank. Love your show. Thank you. Hey, you, for, you forgot the um, uh, Jimmy Dean uh, sausage commercials, which are on all the time. He's been dead for like two decades, uh, and I'm I'm curious whether the voice sounds like him or whether somebody's impersonating him. It's a good question. I, I I'll be honest, I never thought too much about it. But uh, you, so you think they might just be using his old recordings? Well, but it's uh, uh, hard to say because they've come out with new products, you know, like uh, microwaving an egg thing and sausage, and so. Uh, but he's on, and the voice sounds very accurate. I'm an older guy. I'm 72, so I, I remember him. But, yeah, his commercials are on uh, TV all the time. Yeah, well, that, uh, that's that's true, Maurice. I hadn't thought about that. Brian is in Stanford. Hello, Brian. Good morning, Frank. Um, I listen to the 70s channel a lot. Um, I'm totally blind and really into radio. Um, and I will say that um, the Casey Kasem thing – is not just heard on the 70s channel. There are FM radio stations around the country that still uh, carry They carry the American Top 40, right. Yep, yep, yep. They, they still carry it. And um, the other DJs on that station, um, I know J.J. Walker is also... Um, oh, that's right. He is on there, and he is living. Yep. That's a good point. I forgot about him. Yes. Yes, and um, I, you know, I, they used to play a lot more um, jingles than they do now. Um, over the past year, they changed the voice that does the voiceover and whatnot. Um, but it's definitely great to listen to. Like I enjoy listening to it every Saturday. No, I um, do too. I do too. Um, but uh, I do wonder: should this continue forever? Um, I think it should continue for like a certain amount of time. Like maybe the next like. 10 years or so, and then I think it should, like, stop because well, so after the, a while. So how come? So that would be, let's say that we do we take the Brian uh, philosophy and it continues till 2032. That will have yep. been 18 years after he dies that his voice is still introducing records on the radio. Why 18 years? Why not 15 or 30? Um, I'm thinking because... After, you know, with the different decades and whatnot, I think that, you know, the listenership, um, you know, like like some people will start to be like, oh, wait, who, you know, new people. Oh, who's who's this guy? Or, oh, wait, it's kind of getting older. Um, maybe like a little something new, per se. Or maybe, um, you know, maybe put like some sort of different other type of uh, voice on there. Well, uh- Fair enough, Brian. Hey, uh, those of you that are holding, you're welcome to continue to hold. I will get to all of you. But we're also going to give one lucky person an opportunity to win $1,000. If you have what it takes, be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And uh, you'll be able to answer 
10 trivia questions, and if you can do it in 60 seconds, you'll be $1,000 richer. This is The Other Side of Midnight. You can dial now, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. W-A-B-C. Voices carry till Tuesday. Unfortunately for you, it's only Monday. Honestly, I find Monday, especially a holiday like this one, so much better than Tuesday. But I guess that's subjective. All right. Time now for one lucky person to try to become a little bit wealthier. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Moreau. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's meet today's contestant, Harry in Syosset. Hey there, Harry. Uh, it's Barry oh, with a B. Oh, Barry with a B. I'm sorry. Molly's usually on top of that sort of thing. But uh, when we send you your check, Barry, you can bet we will get the proper proper spelling of it. Yeah, I'll sign it with a B also. Thanks, Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, so, Barry, you're familiar with this contest, right? Yes, I am. Okay, yeah, great. I st- yes. I won't, I won't reiterate all the rules then. If you know what you're doing, the timer's going to start once I read the first question, and uh, we'll go through them, okay? Okie doke. Okay. What is the first name of the playwright Shakespeare? William. In the Bible, who lived in a whale? In a, in a whale? A what? In the Bible, who lived in a whale? Jonah. What is the square root of nine? Three. What is the name of Donald Trump's Palm Beach mansion? Mar-a-Lago. What is the capital of New Jersey? Uh, Trenton. Who is the first in line to succeed Queen Elizabeth? Um, uh... King George. I'm sorry. Uh, the first in line to succeed Queen Elizabeth is Prince Charles. Prince Charles. Oh, you you no. did well, though. You were on a roll there, including you were not only getting the right answers, but you were doing well in terms of time. Um, well done, Barry. Maybe, uh, I don't know. Maybe if you were Harry, you would have been a little bit better. Hang on, Barry. Uh, we will get your contact information and we will have Molly send you something nice. Hopefully she sends it to Barry, not Harry. We'll see. Uh, but, uh, she'll take your information. By the way, some people said that the Corvette question on Friday was too difficult. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. What year was the Corvette? Introduced? I don't think so. That's an important part of American history. I don't think that was too 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 obscure in the least. Hey, uh, I will tell you though, we have some brand new WABC merchandise. I was at a family function yesterday, and I was very proud to show off all the cool new WABC Other Side of Midnight merchandise. 
there's not just there's not just stuff with the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, t-shirts, blankets, backpacks, drinkware. There is a really cool shirt with an alien on a planet. It's our alien Prometheus. And it's an alien on a planet and he's planting a flag and the pl- the flag says the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. So if you want to get any of those uh, pieces of merchandise, go to wabcradiostore.com. And whatever you order, if you use the promo code FRANK15, you'll save 15%. It can be a little difficult to find. So some stuff you could find by searching Morano. Other stuff you could find by searching The Other Side of Midnight. But for the new Alien shirt, I had to search um, because I think my uh, sister-in-law, Marley, is going to be uh, purchasing it. At least she told me she was. She was into it. The, she, you know, uh, I had to search Alien. On the website. So WABCRadioStore.com, alien. All right. Uh, I want to get to the people that we're holding, and then we'll move on to some other things as well. Joe is in Orange County and has been patiently holding. Hello, Joe. How you doing, Frank? I got a quick question. Uh, you know, like Casey's been on, he must be on the radio 30 years. Right? More. More than that. More than that. I okay. think I think okay. he was on the radio beginning in, I think it was from like the late 60s, early 70s. Okay, now don't the radio station or say like that that top forty that he used to do don't they have the right to play it again? Yeah, I I think they probably do. Yeah, um, but I mean, should even, they? Even like yeah, but okay, I understand that. Even like yourself, uh, you've been with the station a year and a half. They have the right to play, you know, to, to play the show on you know whatever the best of Frank. Absolutely. Uh, they, they certainly do, Joe. And I actually, I haven't told anybody this. Uh, I haven't told anybody this yet, but Curtis Slewa actually died five years ago. The shows that you're hearing on the weekend are all old yeah. shows that they've been playing. And we, and we still hear that annoying voice, right? <laughs> wow. His interactions with people haven't changed. It's all, it's all I've had better days and calling me a mongalooch. So, uh, good. you know, uh, but you're what right. What the hell are you talking about? The radio station still ra- retains the rights to all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, right. But like you say, I believe you shouldn't do it because you got to give a younger person a chance to get it to make some money and have a job in the, you know, in the radio business. You know, it's like yeah. saying anything else. You know? I, I, I'm of two minds about it, Joe, and I go back and forth, and that's why I appreciate hearing your perspective and the perspective of people like Mark because you're helping me make up my own mind. Because on the one hand, look, there's all these great radio talents that it's a shame that people coming of age will never get to know how great they are. Um, You know, I'm thinking in the talk format, what a sin it is that people won't get to grow up listening to Bob Grant and Rush Limbaugh. And maybe it's nice uh, that uh, you keep, you know, hearing their voices. There's a whole generation of radio listeners that don't know what it was like to listen to Barry Gray or, or Barry Farber or Long John Nebel or Martin Block or William B. Williams. So is it better that we stop playing their recordings and they're forgotten by the present generation? Or um, maybe it is. I just, I don't know. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Uh, Frank, I think it is because they had their chance. You know what I mean? And, and people who listen to Bob Grant... You know, it was great listening to him, but there's going to be somebody else great. That's true. That well, we never I, have the chance if you keep playing those people. Now, you know what I'm saying? I so. follow that completely, right? I, I'm with you completely. However, 
I, you know, I, you know, I might like to watch reruns of uh, Gilligan's Island with John Denver, or reruns of Star Trek with Leonard Nimoy, or reruns of uh, The Twilight Zone with Rod Serling. Why does the same principle not apply to reruns of those classic TV shows? And and again, I don't know the answer. It's sort of me just thinking out loud here, Joe. Um, Joe, good, right. great call. Thank you, and thanks for listening. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Ascar has been patiently holding from New York City. Hello, Ascar. Yeah, how you doing, Frank? Uh, yeah, so this, this is not only happening in, in radio; it's also happening in like uh, religious institutions. Um, the people, uh, the rabbis, the priests, uh, the pastors. They have died, and then they, they have a radio, and they they, they they record the radios, and the sons keep playing their father's preachings, and they keep, they monetize it. So um, you're competing, and you are an aspiring pastor or rabbi or anything. He wants to compete, and they still have this person as the, as the lead rabbi, and they have the sons running and the wives running everything. And it's, 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 it's becoming a problem because it doesn't give opportunity to aspiring rabbis or, or, or priests Interesting. to take over. You know wow. I mean? And um, also, I have another question for you, too. Is, um, is this considered plagiarism? Is this considered a plagiarism if a person um, preaches or does the teachings of that person? Or even in radio, is that plagiarism? Well, like, uh, so in radio, the answer is no, because the entities that are playing those broadcasts, they own the rights to those recordings, to those broadcasts. I can't speak to the the theological aspect of it. If it's in a uh, a synagogue or a church or a mosque, I don't know. I don't know what the story is there, uh, honestly. I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate that. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to be on. And you have a great day, sir. Thank you. You too. Appreciate it. You know, it's funny. And again, I hate to I hate to relate everything to Star Trek and pro wrestling. But you realize how how shallow my depth of knowledge is, is that the first thing that I think of is either Star Trek or pro wrestling when it comes to everything. But. I'm reminded of that Star Trek episode. I mentioned this episode the other day. Um, the the I think it's the the one the return of the uh, Archons, and in that episode, and look, they they use this plot device in a bunch of episodes, including sort of in Star Trek the Motion Picture, not really, but a little different. But in that episode, Return of the Archons, they the crew of the Enterprise, Kirk, Spock, and the like, they discover that this planet is being run by a computer that was programmed by someone who died 6,000 years ago. Um, I mean, should Casey Kasem be controlling people's musical preferences 6,000 years from now? Maybe he should. Better than a lot of the people today. I don't know. Um, We'll do 15 seconds of fame shortly as well. Uh, And uh, I do want to thank, before I uh, run out of time here, uh, Sid Rosenberg for inviting me on the uh, the Bernie and Sid show Friday. I had a great time, and uh, I got great feedback from people that heard it. It's funny. You know, uh, Sid really is quite a performer. He's able to 
there's all sorts of different things that people in radio are good at. Like uh, some people are great at um, interviewing, right? Other people are great at delivering a monologue. Other people are great at arguing with a partner. Um, Sid really is, and I'm not saying this because he's so generous with me, but Sid really is so good at so many different aspects of the talk radio format that um, it really is. See, when you see someone who knows how to do radio well, they make it look effortless. And you could look at Sid and think he's not putting in a lot of work, but he clearly does. Like, he really does know when to um, press the gas, when to press the brake. And uh, I've actually learned a great deal from Sid, I must say. And that's not uh, I, that's not me being patronizing. And I'm glad he's on the station. I'm glad uh, that he's kind enough to invite me on from time to time. I will say one of the things that I have been hearing more and more from listeners is, I, you know, I do these business reports. And in the 5 a.m. hour, these business reports are, are just great, right? Very, very on top of what's happening, uh, latest market news. But by the time the afternoon rolls around and they play these business reports, and again, in some ways, this is almost the same conversation as Casey Kasem and Scott Muni. By the time they play these business reports on Rudy Giuliani's show and the other afternoon shows, I'm reporting on yesterday's stock market news. So... At 5 a.m., it makes sense for me to say what the stock market did on Friday. Well, the stock market closed at, you know, down 40 points or whatever. But by 3 p.m., it really doesn't. Because if you're a trader, 3 p.m. on Friday, do you care that, you know, uh, that the previous day the stock market closed? You want to know what the stock market's doing that day. And a friend of mine said to me when I ran into him Friday – that he almost drove off the road because he thought that I was giving an update on what the market was doing that day. Now, I would have – see, but then, you know, I, if I'm going to – if I point this out to anyone, if I point this out to anyone, it's going to lead me to have to just record two business reports, one for the 5 a.m. and then one for the afternoon. So that's the question. Do I want to create more work for myself? I guess I do. I probably do because otherwise, you know, they're going to associate me with yesterday's news, right? So I guess I probably do. All right, 800-848-9222. Red is calling from Ohio. Hello, Red. It's Greg. Greg. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Greg. Sorry. Hey, uh, does the station you work for, do they own the rights to your podcast? I be- Yes, I do. I think they own the rights to everything that I do, yes. Oh, wow. Well. You know, I think uh, once I pass on, the radio station gets custody of my son, unfortunately. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Hey, your, uh, your radio station, I think, that, don't they do a special on uh, Dean Martin? Yes, well, but that's hosted by his daughter, though. Well, uh, let me have, let me, I have a little problem with that. Let me explain it to you. I'm from, I am originally from Steubenville, Ohio. You ever heard of Steubenville? Sure, that's where Dean Martin's from. Right, and they have a Dean Martin festival in the spring, down there for a whole week. And what bothers me about that is, you know, when Dean Martin had his TV show, when he was always on TV, drunk with all the pretty girls, his family didn't want nothing to do with him, you know. And now you go down at Dean Martin Festival, they sell Dean Martin hats. His daughter comes down, does autographs. I 
I mean, you know, that's what bothers me about it. I don't want to even go to it because of that reason. Well, I mean, I can't speak to that, Greg, but I will tell you, based on my conversations with Dina Martin, it seems like she has a great deal of reverence for her father, and um, it seems like they had a great relationship. Uh, so, you know, I can't speak to anything of what you're describing. I don't know. I have to call her about that. All right. We'll do 15 seconds of fame next. It's Monday. It's President's Day. If you want to email me, I, I'm always up for some good presidential trivia. If you have an obscure presidential fact that I could use throughout the course of my day, email me. I love that stuff. Uh, or you could share it to the Facebook group. Just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. It's a great group. I mean, it's a struggle to keep people on topic sometimes. Sometimes people fool me. Because they'll comment about the show, they'll comment about the show, they'll comment about the show, and I say, oh, that's a user who's always going to comment on the show. Let me pre-approve them so that they can always comment. And then they end up commenting on things not related to the show. So if you want to comment on the show, whether it's positive or negative, just go to that Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. 15 seconds of fame, straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, that is the great Andy B. with our theme song. Thank you, Andy B. By the way, I didn't mean to uh, diminish in any way uh, Bernard McGurk's contributions nor talents to the world of radio. I, I, Sid was just on my mind because he was hosting the show solo on Friday, and I was just on with him. Um, anybody that's listened to me talk about Bernie over the years knows my fondness for Bernie both professionally and personally. So uh, they're both terrific. That's why we're so lucky to have them. And we're so lucky to have you if you dare to make a 15-second conversation. All you have to do is dial 800-848-9222 because it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Anthony in Astoria. Like the Three Stooges episode where they pretend to be plumbers and they proceed to... Wreck the owner's house. We have stooges in the White House who are wrecking the country. We have Nancy Mo Pelosi. Richard in D.C. Uh, yeah, oh, oh. yeah, I welcome these investigations because the American people should know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I earned everything I've got. Mike in Montclair. Good morning, Frank. Frank, make sure that newly acquired baby f- formula is properly secured. Like the Today Sponge, it's still highly pursued on the black market. Fred in Yonkers. Hey, Frank, I like the idea of these micro countries. If Turkey was a micro country, would we call it Cornish hen? <laughs> we want the flurry dories. That's not bad. Anthony in Edison. Uh, yes, good morning. Uh, 
it's uh, it's pretty ironic that this time in history, one of the most troublesome times that we have, and on President's Day, that we have illegitimate disaster sitting in the president's seat with his band of Obama leftovers that don't know nothing but know how to destroy. 800-848-9222. Neil in Staten Island. Six separate stabbings in the subway in one day. Maybe we should bring back the Blasio. God forbid. Tom in the Bronx. Yeah, I'd like to say another place for a micro country would be northern Brazil, where their borders begin. And it looks like Arizona. It's near the doldrums, I believe. That's why it never gets any rain. Ralph in New Jersey. Uh, I would like to uh, denounce uh, Trudeau over in Canada for what he has done, cracking down on people who want to resist and stand for their freedom. Uh, you are duly denounced here on this program, uh, Trudeau. And-, and finally, Leo on the Upper West Side. Eric Adams, who is most probably buying his shoes online from San Francisco, Ludes, is going to soon announce that he's going to talk just to black journalists just like Lori Lightfoot. Have a nice one. Thank you, Leo. You know, it is funny. I didn't get to this today. Maybe we'll talk about this tomorrow. Is, you know, Eric Adams comes out and criticizes the vaccine mandate at, um, you know, for Kylie Irving and says, well, why can only why are only home players bound by this, not the visitors? And then this is four days after he fired thousands of New York City workers for not getting vaccinated. That was a little hypocritical, I think. Maybe we'll talk about it tomorrow. Hey, uh, the WABC News with the early news with the great Deb Valentine is next. I'll be back at 1 a.m. Frank Morano, good day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.